0: This week's Coalition of Chaos. Welcome to the show that always provides a strong and stable. Who am I kidding? Welcome to Bite Live. Let's go! Yes it's one welcome to episode 17 of Bike Life Hero on Motorsport 101 as we look back on another unpredictable MotoGP weekend in Barcelona the Catalunya Grand Prix which saw Ducati go back-to-back back for the first time in nearly 7 years Casey Stoner was the last rider to win consecutive Grand Prix for Ducati André Di Vizioso has changed all of that with another incredible victory uh, in Barcelona, beating the Hondas this time as Yamaha sank without trace. We will talk about all of the stories from that Catalunya Grand Prix weekend including circuit changes, and tyre wear, which dominated the Grand Prix that we saw on the Sunday, Andrea Vizioso being the best at controlling it and being rewarded with a victory, which may well have put him in into championship contention. We'll discuss whether he is indeed a genuine title threat now after back-to-back victories. Um, we'll also ask if Alex Marquez has a real title challenge in him after he went from flag to flag in Moto 2. Uh, and we'll talk about John Mir's brilliant victory on the final lap. A lap from the gods to take victory in the Catalunya Moto3 race. And we'll also tell you where he's going next year because he is switching classes. We'll tell you which team he's joining in Moto2. Uh, we'll also talk about the big news as many, many riders are on the verge of switching or on the verge of being sacked in all three classes. And look ahead to a huge weekend of superbikes as BSB and World Superbikes return to action um, at Knockhill and Mizano respectively. Um, after missing this week's uh, 90th episode of Motorsport 101, um, looking to uh, regain his position as the Prime Minister of Motorsport 101 is Andre Harrison. It's a warm welcome, Dre.
1: Yeah, yeah, like, okay, I'm here, I'm here, and like I said, <laughs> like, what, like, like, why can't I call a snap election? This is some bullshit. Like, like, I'm not, like, King hijacked my podcast, brought in the Looney Brigade, and now all of a sudden the Monster Raving Looney Party have taken over of on Motorsport 101. I'm not happy with this. Like, I'm going to roast King in the House of Commons next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the backbenchers are, are revolting already after after what we
0: saw uh, earlier this week. Episode 90 of Motorsport 101, The Coalition of Chaos, um, as it's been titled, um, featuring uh, Ryan King uh, in uh, the captain of said chaos this week as the host of the show, um, joined by, well, it was a four-man boo this week, joined by uh, Chris Cook and Matt Canero, um, who uh, did their best to turn our podcast into their podcast. Um, pretty much and uh, debut panellist Charles Regimbal who joined us this week as well Um, flying the flag flying the maple leaf uh, for Canada this week um,
1: Somebody had too often scored
0: points. <laughs> yeah, and uh, did he ever. Um, so, uh, so uh, make sure you head, head over and listen to that. It's uh, in all the good places where podcasts are released, including SoundCloud, soundcloud.com forward slash motorsport101, episode 90 of the Motorsport 101 podcast. And plenty of other places you can find us, though, including Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. We are on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. Um, We are on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101 on there as well. And our website is motorsport101.net. If you want to back us financially, if you like us that much, you can by heading to Patreon, where it is still $3 a month to earn early access to each of our shows, Motorsport 101 and Bike Live for the month of June. Patreon.com forward slash motorsport101 is the place to go. So let's crack on and talk Catalunya, um, because we, we flagged this up last week. In that MotoGP is just so impossible to predict these days, and it, it kind of proved that that way again. Another unpredictable uh, MotoGP weekend, rate uh, out in Barcelona um, last weekend, and yeah, it was. It, it all started on Friday morning with the the unpredictability of, of the weekend, because of course the uh, the circuit layout had been changed um, yeah. for this year. Because um, we saw the changes last year given the tragic circumstances of Louis Salom's death in free practice, the Formula One chicane was installed and the hairpin at 10.10 were installed um, for the rest of the weekend. Now, ahead of this year, um, we saw a a slight tweak to that, um, in that an earlier chicane was installed. Basically, a chicane slightly ahead of the Formula One chicane was installed, which was going to be exclusive to the MotoGP riders that they would be using for the weekend. Um, But in one of the great comedy moments of this, or in any MotoGP season, nobody appeared to have
1: told Jack Miller. (laughs) It was great. Like, like Jack Miller was like good. Like, it's not like he like hovered a little bit or thought about it or hesitated and realized, oh no, I've gone wrong. He just shamelessly uses the F one chicane as he goes past it. And it, what was the most amazing thing about it was on BT Sport, where you saw in the live coverage he's done it. And then the guys on the hard camera cut to Mark Marquez in the garage, who's pissing himself yeah. with laughter. Like, it, it's amazing. You just see Marquez laughing his head off. As he's just seen Miller use the F1 chicane, turns out it was one step ahead of the game. He's a, he's a shrewd character, Jack Miller. He's yeah. no—he's no fool. Yeah, he <laughs> knew what
0: was coming clearly. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, it was—it's a very rare scenario that you see a rider black flagged from a practice session. Um, but, but, that's, <laughs> but, but that's what happened to Jack Miller. He was essentially disqualified from pre-practice one, but using the wrong circuit. Um, <laughs> like, that just says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, like he's almost like he'd been watching world touring cars and thought, yeah, we're we're, we're using joke laps here, right? Um, but uh, but no, that wasn't the case for Jack Miller. He um he had the uh, the of um of being ruled out of the practice session and the great scenes as Loris Capirossi went over to Mark VDS to tell him, hey, you're know, you're going the wrong way, Jack. Um and just the, the look on his face, even with the crash helmet on, you could see him wide eyed as if oh, I've made myself look a tit here. It's um, like, like, oh no! Yeah, like, uh, yeah, Jack Miller. Just, uh, yeah, there was, there'll be no living that one down. I'm afraid, Jack. Um,
1: yeah, A long moment of the year has been sewn up in in the month of June. Now that, that takes some doing, Jack. Yeah, like, it
0: yeah, an incredible job from Jack Miller, and um, yeah, provided much hilarity for for all of us watching uh, on Friday. Um, but yeah, uh, as it turns out, Jack Miller can um, can give himself the out that he he just was ahead of the game, as Dre said, he knew what was coming because Friday practice was dominated in in many ways by some crashes that we saw at that chicane. The chicane had been installed. Yeah for the MotoGP race exclusively. Um, Alvaro Bautista went down there, um, providing one of the other great comedy moments of the day, because he went down, picked the bike up, and as he's trying to jump back on the bike, he fell over again, um, (laughs) as he was trying to remount and get back going. Then we saw Loris Baz um, crash later in that session as well. And the big problem, or two big problems that we found here, Dre, with this chicane, one that the change of tarmac from... Um, what is essentially the Formula 1 circuit to the MotoGP circuit was providing a bit of, a bit of bumpy tarmac. It was unsettling the bikes and sending them down. Um, it wasn't very grippy, but then that was kind of in common with the rest of the circuit. Um, but also, when bikes were crashing, they were essentially crashing back into the road and basically sitting in the middle of the track and in the way of oncoming traffic, which is beyond dangerous um, for a MotoGP circuit, which led to some pretty high-profile and pretty serious discussions on Friday night, which led to that she came being scrapped altogether.
1: It's nice to see that MotoGP actually banged their heads together and, and took the, a positive step on this one because we, we talked about this on last week's show. It seemed like a bit of a bodge job in the first place to have this revamped earlier chicane on there that wasn't the F1 chicane, even though that, that from what I could see there was no real problem with, with using the F1 chicane last year. Why did it require changing in the first place? I don't understand, but Yeah, like, I'm glad that, you know, cool heads prevailed and, you know, they smartly, they all got their heads together. I was like, okay, we can't have this, fellas. Um, And they went back to the F1 layout the next day and, again, the problem seemed to go away. So, kind of begs the question, why did they feel the need to have another chicane in there in the first place? Yeah, (laughs) and it
0: also begs the question, given that MotoGP, well, not MotoGP, it was an official test, but there was some private testing that took place at that circuit on that layout with that chicane um about 10 days prior to the MotoGP race it was the week before Lamont uh, the week before yellow, <laughs> should I say um where we saw some riders test there like Repsol Honda tested there Ducati t- tested there um most notably Yamaha didn't um which was a, bit, a big topic conversation when they started to struggle uh, in free practice uh KTM I think tested there as well we saw um Bautista I think was there um there were, there were a few others there. I think there were about a dozen or so riders who tested there um and what amazes me is that this problem then emerged on Friday. How was this problem not identified before they started pre practice? I I, I just
1: don't, and they had a test as well. Yeah, like that they had a test like a week prior, and they knew like like everybody that was that went to that chicane said it said it was terrible. I remember even Marquez, the guy that probably most likely benefit, of everybody else down there, because you all know he's he's demonically fast and honda like slower low speed first gear sort of corners mm. even he mm. said it was bad and i remember distinctively on friday cal crutchlow saying the test there was a complete waste of time which which was amazing so crutchlow just said listen straight listen like we brought all this gear down there and it was a waste it was completely pointless mm. well, cal crutchlow's
0: um, big gripe was with the michelin tire options that were taking that test because yeah. that was one of the big Reasons for the test to test some new constructions and new compounds of tyre for Michelin to perhaps run in the future, and then Michelin decided to take none of them to the Grand Prix.
1: <laughs> this season is a joke, like, 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 nobody knows what's happening anymore. Like, this, this is this is crazy to say the least. It's 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 ridiculous, and again, like, I don't see what the point was of that test if you're not even going to run any of the tires you experiment in a full race weekend program. Isn't that where you're going to get the most reliable data in, you know, an actual racing environment when these guys are are racing flat out and you go, that's the most relative, relevant form of data you're going to get? so. If you're experimenting on all these tires and whatnot, why are you not bringing them to any Grand Prix? The whole thing it just seems somewhat of a fruitless endeavour, if you ask me. So yeah, I can see why Carl think it was a waste of time. Yeah, he
0: does. And what what was really funny about that is, and we'll talk about the post race test because they tested officially uh, on Monday in Barcelona, the Monday after the Grand Prix, um, early this week, and. Um, in the Grand Prix they ran the asymmetric um, front tires from Michelin, which obviously has one side of the tire as a softer compound than the other um, and yet Marc Marquez on the Monday in the test ran the symmetric, compound of tyre where it's basically the same on either side and Mark Marquez most was notably, uh, from his press release afterwards, Mark Marquez was notably happier with the symmetric compound. He says this, ah. this, felt, this felt much better than the asymmetric that we ran uh, over the race weekend so yeah, it almost kind of gives the impression that Mitchley maybe got it wrong um, with, with the compounds that they brought but I, I, I do like the fact that they are throwing so so many regular curveballs at the teams and the teams don't really know whether they're coming or going at the moment which, um, given that we have a controlled tyre supplier, is You'd expect them all to have a pretty sensible, solid base and know where they're coming from. But Michelin are doing a good job in a way, whether it's by accident or by design. Michelin are doing a pretty good job of keeping these teams honest and on their toes at the moment. Um, But but the Grand Prix weekend as a whole was unpredictable um, for two reasons, really. One, the circuit uh, and the fact that the track temperatures were so high. Track temperatures often touched 50 degrees um given that we're in the heat of summer in spain um so yeah you're not expecting it to be too chilly there are you um in barcelona yep. um the track surface is very very old it needs re- it's needed relaying for a long time now it's even the formula one tires as uh, rock hard as they are this season even they managed to get through a grand prix with more than one stop this year um which, uh, kind of tells, you, which tells you as much as you need to know about how much it's wearing tires around there um but uh but even above that, the fact that Michelin were bringing in compounds of tyres that appear to be wearing pretty quickly, and that there was a big drop-off on, um, it led to a very unpredictable weekend, and a lot of unhappy riders, drain. Now, how much of the blame for this lies at the door of Michelin, and how much of it lies at the door of the circuit, for basically pre- presenting a MotoGP race with a very old, and very, very, very second-hand track surface?
1: The answer to that question is yes. Okay. Um, basically, but um, long answer is... I'm not sure to be honest you' like, like like where the scale lies up on this one because they've they, I'm sure they've both got to have a say in this. like Michelin has been so unpredictable with their tire supply so far they've split the paddock in how they've you know tested these different front tires they've split the paddock and, and it, it comes to opinion and whether they like them or not it's caused it's caused dissension i said it last week it reminds me a lot of formula one in 2013 where ferrari and lotus were the best on the tires to start they changed the compounds around and all of a sudden red bull and Merckx were 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 the fastest teams in the field it's that sort of situation here where depending on the track depending on, on on the temperature and you know the the track layout and you know how the surface is you're getting dramatically different results in races now and Catalina has been said it's in bad need of a resurface and the part of that is because the track is state owned but it's going to be privately owned very soon. So they're going to have new ownership of that circuit very soon and I think maybe then we'll get the entire track surface relayed but um, the fact it's an old track, the fact it's not had a resurfacing in I think 12 years now. Um, we've seen it before in f one. I remember a few years ago and it was a four stop Grand Prix and that was just ridiculous um to say the least, and it's always been had the reputation of being a tire breaker um, in in two wheels and in four. So for that to happen, um yeah, like it's it's sloppy. and I think the words you used to describe it so to be before we went on the air was not fit for purpose. and I think that's actually. A, a pretty valid description. Where
0: yeah, it's, it's interesting because Simon Patterson um, of MCN uh, did a good job of kind of illustrating how the circuit felt to the riders, or what it, what, what a low grip surface meant to the riders. Because the temperatures were high, as we've already discussed, and the circuit, uh, as Simon Patterson puts it, it's combination of well polished, large diameter stones. Um, so it's pretty well polished now from having been used so for so many years without being resurfaced, so the circuit's been polished and polished as it's been run over so many times, um, as any road would be. Um, just look at some, oh. of your, some of your local roads, perhaps where you live, that haven't been relayed for ages. You'll see that they're quite polished and quite they have a bit of a sheen on them because they've not been relayed for ages. Um, and, and it's kind of like this here. Um, but also, when you have such high temperatures, the circuit essentially was... As as Sam Passon put it, a hellish mix of abrasiveness and slipperiness. So it's abrasive, and that it's really ruining the tires from purely being an abrasive track surface. But it's not like it's even offering great grip at the same time. It's just, riders are slip. The tires are just sliding around at the start of a Grand Prix. So you're you're not even getting the benefit of a of a grippy track at the start, and then the tires are dropping off. You're getting a drop off from a point of a circuit that's that's just slippery to begin with. Um, so there's yeah. no real there's no real benefit for the riders at any stage of the Grand Prix. It's a lose lose um, from the rider's point of view, and that and that's where I'd say the circuit's not fit for purpose because there's no real it's not really offering up any kind of reward to a rider who does a good job out there uh, no. at the moment, which is which is a real shame. And it's interesting you mentioned the ownership of the circuit and the issues they're having because um, Julian Ryder mentioned on Friday that. Um, Carmelo Espaleta and Dorna had offered to buy some of the land on the outside of Turn 12, the corner that infamously took Luis Salom last year, um, to basically create more space on the outside of that corner so they could use that Turn 12. You could use the faster corner, and it couldn't be done. Um, They could not basically come to a deal to sell that land to to Dorna for them to take ownership of that land and and create more runoff. So Uh there are clearly problems in the background in, in Barcelona at that circuit that mean that... Just things aren't getting done at the moment. And what amazed me, reading Simon Patterson's column this week, is that the MotoGP Riders Safety Commission, they that it was called on the eve of Sunday's race, so they called this on Saturday, they called for the track to be resurfaced ahead of next year's race, with some even going so far such as to suggest a boycott um, next year. Which does give you the idea that if riders are preparing to boycott this, they clearly don't feel this circuit is up to MotoGP standard anymore.
1: No, and that's that's big like you like know, these are moto gp riders they will ride on just about anything and if this is too much for a moto gp rider to handle then something needs to be done and fast because like if you're willing to buy land to extend turn 12 surely you can afford part of a resurfacing right yeah like so, so you'd think so like that's clearly where the problem is like you, you don't need that turn 12 to work i mean Okay, some of these fans some fans, some journalists are gonna be of course they want the old turn twelve back because F one doesn't use it anymore either. And of course like like I get it because it's it, a better it, corner. It's, it's a better corner. I'm not I'm not disputing that for a minute, but there's no getting around it. Like turn twelve is unsafe for bike riders now. Like like the the runoff is too short. you, you just it's a no go. You can't use it unless you again, like you say, Extend the land, and that's what Dorna offered to do. The bigger issue is the track is is not fit for purpose. It's 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 too shiny. It it, ha- it offers no grip. It chews tires up and spits them out. And these riders were four seconds a lap slower between the start of the race and the end of the race. Like I think Volga had the fastest lap of the race with a 45 in the early stages, and then was running forty-sevens and forty-eights at the end of the Grand Prix. It says it all, really. Like the, like the tires were disintegrating in front of our very eyes. I thought we might have to get like a mandatory ride-through penalty sort of situation like, like, like um like in we North saw ireland. in ireland and argentina uh in the past where like okay this is this isn't working guys like like we have to we have to do something about this and yeah we got away with it on this occasion but this, this could have been a lot more disastrous than it ended up being but it resulted in, in, a, in a race where everybody had to nurse their tires and nobody really wants to see that in in, in biking terms and as you say there wasn't really a net gain for anybody out there from saving their tires. It was just a matter of, it was a race that not everybody could ride to their full potential, and as a result, we had a distant, spread out, kind of messy sort of race that probably wasn't representative of the true quality of the field.
0: No, no, good was...
1: thing, but sometimes it's also a bad thing. Yeah, not necessarily bad to watch,
0: but you kind of you weren't quite sure what you're watching in a sense. You're kind of thinking, well, is this really? Are we seeing rider skill at play here, or are we kind of seeing luck basically dictate how this race goes? Um, and and yeah, it's it's not a great time to be in this kind of position if you are a circuit on the GP calendar. Given that there are a number of venues looking to get on the calendar, um, now I know you know instincts tells you that Barcelona will always be pretty safe on the calendar, given that Dorna's headquarters are in Barcelona, um, so it is almost Dorna's home Grand Prix um, in, in Catalonia. So you know they're not going to want to see this circuit go. Um, But given that Thailand wants on the calendar, um, even if Valentino Rossi in particular doesn't really want Thailand on the calendar, um, we have the Kimi Ring in Finland that wants on the MotoGP calendar as well, um, and many, many other venues besides that want a piece of the the MotoGP action now. Um, It's in high demand. Um, So it's not really a great time to be sort of basically... Not providing the best of shows, the best of venues to MotoGP, right? Um, which is what Barcelona are doing, and it's amazing, isn't it? Because uh, as Julian Ryder mentioned again in commentary, it's not so long ago that we looked at the Circuit de Catalunya as one of the state-of-the-art venues on the calendar. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it was it was new to Formula One back in 1992. It was it was brought in because it was part of the um, Barcelona Olympic um, movement and the the regeneration yeah. that surrounded the Olympic Games that year. Um, but it wasn't so long ago that we looked at the Circuit to Catalunya right, as one of the true state of the art venues on the calendar, and now it's looking a little bit tired and a little bit
1: old. Yeah, God. Speaking of speaking of tired and old, that was the year I was born, ninety two. Jesus. <laughs> um Yeah, but you're absolutely right. It was a state of the art back then. It was a state of the art track, and it was under the it quickly became one of like the staple rounds on not just the MotoGP calendar but the F one calendar as well. It was a Prolific round where that was considered. Well, I mean, it's no coincidence that F1 still tests a Catalonia every year as well. It's it's a big it's a big round. It's a big European round in a prolifically European championship, both in F1 and in gp where they have four rounds in in Spanish rounds uh, every year. So, yeah, for Catalonia to go from one of the premier, pristine blue ribbon events on the calendar to one where again riders are considering boycotting it because of how bad the track surface is. Kind of says it all, really.
0: Yeah, not a good look for the second castle and we hope that between now and next year that they, uh, they get their act together, should we say, and, um, and produce a, a better track service. Cause I think that's all it really needs at the moment because the actual circuit, look at the layout of the circuit, the corners and all lots of other stuff. It's a great track, um, certainly for bike racing. It might not produce the greatest sure. Formula One races this year, perhaps with an exception to that rule. Um, in the strategic race we saw between Hamilton and Vettel. But by and large, he doesn't produce great Uh, Formula Races, but fantastic MotoGP races. Of course. But yeah, I think they just need to relay the place and then I think everyone will be happy. And uh, yeah, we won't have any threats of boycotts this time next year. Let's talk about the race that we got then uh, and the race weekend that we got um, for MotoGP. Danny Pedrosa took pole position on the Saturday um, as Martin Marquez was too busy crashing um, throughout the weekend. Um, Crashed four times on Saturday um amazingly including twice in q2 uh andre De qualified down in seventh now on the sunday um as dre mentioned the story was all about tire management and who could look after their tires the best and uh for many many years we've known that this was one of the great strengths of andre davidzioso uh and so it proved dre
1: so it did, and yeah, the man is is an unbelievably talented rider, He's, he is buttery smooth on, on a MotoGP track, he doesn't wear his tyres out at all when he rides, he, he never spins the wheels up, which is so impressive for the most impressive bike in the field, the most powerful bike in the field, the Ducati, which is... Known for having an explosive um, amount of power. You known for being a handful through the corners. Yeah, exactly. Heavy to turn because of how big it was, you know, how powerful it was, and how it would often drain a rider's strength. So you have to physically manhandle it to get it round corners. And yet, here's Andrea vizioso who's bulked up, strengthened up, and is able to ride so smoothly. Which is amazing, given that Jorge Lorenzo is on the other side of the garage, and yet here we are. And he was another guy that was, that's known for just not making mistakes and maybe the T V not doing it justice to just to just, to just how smooth a rider he is. But Dovi was just so good. Yet again. And this like he he didn't wear out his tires. And it watching that race, he was playing possum. He could have he could have he sat in that second place behind Pedrosa. He let Pedrosa do all the work. He let Pedrosa go quite hard. You know, wore out his front tire trying to break Dovi. It never worked. And you could see Dovi was sitting up into turn one's braking zone. Every single lap, he was just sitting there, just waiting for the right time. And if Dovi just knew, I can pull the yeah, pin here any time I like. And, and with eleven to go, he he pulled the pin. He he took the lead, and then Danny Pedrosa just couldn't keep up, and that was the end of that. <laughs> it
0: was, and yeah, uh, you know, we we talk about confidence a lot, and it, it's a, it's difficult, obviously, to quantify. You know, how much confidence aids a rider, and how much they benefit from being confident, but. It's almost, I don't know about you, Dre, but almost looking at the Vizioso in these last two rounds, it's almost like we've seen him grow in stature um, as, yeah. he's, as he's gaining confidence from that win in Mijello. And he just looked such a confident rider throughout that weekend. And as you say, sitting behind <laughs> Danny Pajosa, he looked like a guy who had everything under control.
1: Yeah, I'll I, say this on the record. I've never seen the Vizioso look this good riding a motorcycle, ever. This is... This is his tenth season, I think, or eleventh season in MotoGP, and he's never looked as comfortable as that at the front of a field. Again, like I said, he could he could have pulled the trigger and passed Pedrosa whenever he wanted, and he could just like, like the commentators pointing this out as well. Hewan and Ryder more pointing this out that Dovi looked so in control of that race, where you could just you just knew like he was sitting it out. He was breaking it early. He had, he had no reason to make a move, wear out his tyres. He could just watch the laps countdown. And then, you know, he, he, could, he could spot the moment to take the lead. It was like, okay, this is going to be the one right here. Bang, there it is. Smooth as you like. Takes the lead. And then Pedroso, when he's trying to catch up and overtake him, has no tyres left and the race is over. I've never seen Dovi look that good and look that in control of the job. Even more so than in Mugello, where, again, it was like, Vignadez never really went away. But um, this time around, it was, it, was, it was as calculated and as measured a ride as I've ever seen from Daviziozzo, especially in the dry.
0: Mm, yeah, he was he was superb. He just, yeah, he was, it wasn't just the fact that he won the race, but it's how he won it. He won it well um, and, and fully earned it. And back-to-back back dry wins. It's the first time Ducati have done this for seven years, as I mentioned in, in the build-up to this show. Uh, Casey Stoner, towards the end of his Ducati run, before he switched to Repsol Honda for 2011, he won, I think, three in a row at the end of 2010. Um, so that's the last time Ducati won consecutive Grand Prixs. Um, and they've been consecutive dry Grand Prix as well, Dre. Consecutive wins on pure pace and on, on merit rather than owing anything yeah. to mixed conditions or weather um, for Andre Di Vizioso. And, I mean, Jorge Lorenzo was up there too. He was he led the race early on and finished fourth, so we have to give him credit too. But how much of this at the moment is Ducati really making gains with their bike, or how much of this is just Di Vizioso on the crest of a wave?
1: I don't know. That's the funny thing about it is that Okay. Because Andrea
0: also oh, was at pains to point out after the Grand Prix that Ducati aren't there yet. That bike still has some fundamental flaws in it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like it, it, this is not going to happen every round for Ducati, and if, if it's Ducati. Well, what would you expect? But at the same time, like I don't know where the baseline of this bike is. Like the Ducati on across the board was strong this weekend. It was. This was the first weekend ever they had six bikes automatically qualify for Q two. That had never happened before. So they were strong across the board. Like, they weren't so strong in the race itself, unfortunately. But, again, in, in qualifying, like, the one lap pace was certainly there. And, yeah, like the bike is not going to do this every single round. It's fundamentally still probably a little bit too powerful. It's not. It doesn't have the ultimate pace that maybe a clean Yamaha or a, a clean Honda with Martin Marquez at the front has got. Or... You know, it's not not going to be ideal for every temperature situation out there, but it looks like Ducati's got a decent all rounder for the first time. And, you know, like Lorenzo looked very good towards the end of that one as well. But it's, I don't know whether, it's like Ferrari in the early 2010s where they had Fernando Alonso who had the entire team built around him. So. I was often sitting there thinking, okay, what's the baseline for this car? Is it something near where Nando is, or is it something near where Felipe Massa is? Is, is, is Alonso like outperforming the car that much, or is it the fact that it's that it's a, it's a really good car, and it's just that Neo Nando is, is is basically being an average pilot in what's a really really good car, and that's that's the problem here. Like it's it's, it's hard to get a measure on this because Dovi is god doing the math here, Dray. 45 points ahead of Lorenzo in the championship now. I don't think anybody would have expected this, given that, you know, sure, Lorenzo's learning a brand new bike for the first time in a decade, but, like, we've never really been this high on Davizioso as a rider before. And no. I, think, I, think, I think a lot of people would have said that Lorenzo probably would outperform Dovi over an yeah, entire... Yeah,
0: we've always seen Davizioso as sort of in that tier below Lorenzo, Rossi, Marquez. The best of the yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the best of the rest. He, like he was the best guy that wasn't riding the top four. Whether it be, you know, Marquez or Slash Stoner, um, you know, Rossi or Lorenzo in blue. Like, Dovi was the fifth guy for me. Like, he was the guy that was on the outside looking into that club. He was the best of the rest guy. He was often on a Ducati that wasn't competitive enough to run with Honda or Yamaha anyway. And now look, he's got a bike that's capable of winning races and here he is, seven points off the top of the title. He's only had the one real bad race, race. and again, he hasn't really had a bad race because he was taken out in Argentina by Alicia Spagaro. Um, and that was a race where, he, again, he was running in the top six. He's not really put a foot wrong this entire season. He's he's always performed you know, to the maximum that bike can give him, pretty much. And outside of maybe Jaref, where Lorenzo had the upside and had that third-place finish, which was, again, a very strong result. But, yeah, as it stands right now, it's Dovi has been the consistent one. He's not really made mistakes. He's he's picked up the results where he can get him and. When the bike is good, he's excellent. And, again, I've never seen Dovi look this good through seven rounds of a championship.
0: No, he's looking superb at the moment. And and Andrea Vizioso is... I mean, he's, he's, his victories have been so infrequent in MotoGP that you almost forget, this is a guy who does know how to win a world championship. 2004 125 champion, uh, Andres Di Vizioso. And this was a 125 season, a 125 class in 2004, which included Hector Barbera, Jorge Lorenzo, Casey Stoner, Alvaro Bautista, Marco Simoncelli, Simone Corsi, Julian Simon, who went on to become a 125 champion, Gabo Talmashi, who went on to become a 125 champion, Mike Demelio, who went on to become a 125 champion. It was a strong, classy one in 2004, really? so he knows how to win a championship. But Dre, dare I say it? Dare I ask it? Can he win this one?
1: Yeah. I'm not ready to go that far just yet. Um. <clears throat> The blessing is he's got Austria coming up in a couple of months' time. Says a lot. Uh, We're actually genuinely <clears throat> asking the question now. Yeah, because he's not making mistakes. And this is a season where everyone in the top 10 has had at least one bad race outside of maybe Jonas Volga, because he's the only guy in the field that scored points in every single round. But all of the big hitters have had at least one questionable race. Maverick crashing at Cota, you know, Marquez having the two DNFs at Le Mans and in Argentina has had two DNFs. Rossi's had the bad race in, in her ref, and he crashed at Le Mans when he could have taken an easy second. Zarco, well we all know about Zarco's one. Lorenzo again crashed lap one in Argentina. It goes on, like every big hitter has had questionable rounds. It's taken major points off them and Dovi, simply by not really making any major mistakes, has put himself in the mix. And he's pretty much got one more nailed-on win, or at least a 20-pointer, in Austria coming up in, in, in the month of August after the summer break. So the way it's going right now, like if he can win two or three more, or maybe even two more then.
0: Who knows? We haven't even had a wet race yet, and we all know Um, how well the Ducatis and Dovi go in the wet. So you know he might well be able to pin his, uh, you know, hang his hat on a couple of wet races in the future that could see him pick up some big points. And the championship has just swung from from here to there as the season's gone on. A couple of rounds ago, Dre, we were almost writing off the Hondas. Um, given how badly they looked, yeah. how badly they went at Le Mans, Marquez crashed from the tail of the leading group as he was dropping off that leading group. And then he finished sixth behind mm-hmm. Bautista at Magello. But uh, as Yamaha struggled badly, and we'll come on to them in a bit, second and third for Repsol Honda,
1: Marquez and Pedroza, and they're right back in the hunt again. They'll take it. They will take this every single time. And this was a round where... Honda had the ultimate pace. Like they'll be a bit miffed they didn't win in the end, because Marquez and Pedrosa were fast all, all the way through the weekend, despite Marquez being a reckless cowboy of a rider as we get crashing five times and tripping over his own starter motor. Yeah, I'd mentioned
0: that. I mean, yeah. it was a weekend for blam moments. Mark Marquez, who on the Sunday morning, why he was <laughs> why he was doing it, I don't know, because there was no threat of rain. But he was essentially doing a sort of flag to flag. Practice wasn't he? He was trying to jump from yeah. one bike to the other, tripped over his start motor, and fell over in pit lane. How? Um, but, um, but true to all, Mark Marquez, not one to lack a sense of humor, decides he was going to do another sort of tumble as he came onto the podium. on um, on yeah. Sunday afternoon after finishing second, bless him. Yeah.
1: Uh, what a guy! What a guy! What a face of the sports. But, uh, again, like Marquez, given that he had crashed five times that weekend to finish in second and look as disciplined as he was there, was was a fantastic ride from Marquez. And, you know, Pedrosa looked a lot more comfortable all weekend, and yet, once again, Marquez had the ultimate level of pace above Pedrosa on this one, and that's why Marquez is the lead guy in that team. It was another one of those critical weekends. I think Marquez, you wouldn't have blamed him if he had crashed that weekend, um, given, given the amount of accidents he'd had prior. But this time around, he got his head screwed on, didn't make any mistakes, and it was a flawless ride. He got the maximum available to him on this occasion, and that was second place. And that is what he badly needed for the championship, because all of a sudden, he's now only 23 points off Maverick again. And all again, like, he's had two mistakes where I thought, OK, this season looks like it could be a write-off for Honda completely. And yet, there he is, back within a race of Maverick again. So this season is tossing up some unpredictable results, but it's also letting guys like Marquez and Projosa get away with it right now
0: yeah Marquez said himself after the race that you know, the championship is kind of a roller coaster so we don't really know what to expect from race to race so we must only think about ourselves keep the concentration high and try to give 100 percent um and basically try and maximize the points return from every weekend um even if that means sixth as it did in Mugello or second in this case just get as many points as you can get out of that weekend and get out of there um, and we kind of have to be open-minded, don't we, Dre, about this championship this year and the way we view it, because, I mean, the top the top five in the championship are covered by 28 points at the moment, but we're really not at a stage where we can write any of those five off because we're seeing big point swings from race to race.
1: Somewhere, Johan Zarko is scribbling out a plan as we speak, like, I can get in here, like, I can get in here, all least... is. Yeah, and he's only thirty-six off the top right now. He's—he's—he's he's, he's, he's of contention even just by sheer consistency. Um, again, you have to ask the question: Why Zarko hadn't crashed in Qatar? He'd be right up there right now. Holy crap! He'd be crap. leading the championship. He probably, yeah, <laughs> probably, Maverick be would be five points less off, wouldn't he? Yeah, he'd be five points less off, and Zarko would be—that'd be a thirty-point swing. And that would most likely put Zarko in second place right now. So. It's, it's bonkers right now. You can't write off anybody in the top five as it stands at the minute. And, like, Aston is probably going to throw up another funky result because Aston always throws up a funky result.
2: Um,
1: so, yeah, as it stands right now, this is all sorts of interesting. And, again, like, the fact that Michelin are so unpredictable, the fact that these three manufacturers are handling these circuits in three completely different ways. Yamaha's had two bogey rounds. Like Honda was nowhere at Mugello chicati still probably not lacking the ultimate pace on a weekend yet um outside of these high tire wear situations so yeah like right now it's it's a complete toss up between the top 5 good luck picking out a winner when that's concerned
0: yeah and how good is it for most gp just for the sport i mean we said this last week about how great most gp is and how open it is and how we're almost in a golden era for most gp and that we we're genuinely talking about five riders who could win this world championship. I mean, I think back to one of my favourite Formula One seasons of 2010, um, which, yes. did, which didn't have many great races in it, but it had a five way title fight all, all the way till the penultimate round when, when Button drops yeah. out, and we had a four way finale in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Um, we, we might be heading for something similar to that this season, because um, as good as Maverick Vinales was in those early stages of the season, we've seen enough since
1: Jerez really to suggest that he's not going to run away and hide with this. No, exactly. And. I looked at the I looked at the bookies odds right now, and uh, Maverick is a surprising ten to eleven odds-on favorite right now, which I think is far too harsh yeah, would, right yeah, now. I want to be taking that right now. No, ten to eleven is is nowhere near an inviting price. Martin Marquez is five to two. Dovi is nine to two. Well, has Dovi ever been nine to two to win a championship? Like not since two thousand six. Um, Danny Pedrosa, six to one, and Valentino Rossi seven to one right now. So. It's a toss-up. I think Maverick's odds are far too harsh. It's not appealing at all at 10 to 11, but yeah, as you say, right now, it's anyone's guess. I would not be touching Maverick at 10 to 11 with a barge pole right now. Um, it's it's bonkers. It's, it's, it's all over the place right now, and like I said, there is no definitive number one bike and rider in the field right now, and this is the most intriguing MotoGP season maybe since 2006, mm. which because 2006 had again had five guys in the title mix going into Estoril. Well, we all know what happened in that ridiculous round. But at that point in time, even down to that to rookie Danny Pedrosa, still had an outside chance of winning the title. We had five guys in the mix until the penultimate round, and we don't. Think we've had a situation like that since and it could very well be like this again here because as it stands this this is ridiculous we've never had this where we get five guys on three different manufacturers all all have a decent chance at the title
0: yeah and and as you say they've all got rounds coming up where they they will feel they have a chance i mean valentino will probably feel that assen's his best chance of winning a grand prix given that since he's joined yamaha for the second time he's he's always pretty much been the man to beat there certainly in the dry he's won the two dry races we've had there since 2013 um, mm-hmm. you've also got Honda who will feel that the Saxon ring after that will be one of their banker rounds. Certainly Mark will. Um, he'll fancy himself there. Austria follows that where Ducati will fancy their chances. So that yeah, there are there are there are cases to be made for all five contenders at the moment and all three teams involved uh, at the front of the championship. Um, and, and for Danny Pedro's a dre, he he might be perhaps the one of those top three who might be a little bit disappointed coming away from this one, given that he took pole position on the Saturday, and just about everybody around the front, the likes of Mark Marquez, Cal Crutchlow, were talking Danny up for winning that Grand Prix, given that the Honda seemed to be the best bike in the field around that circuit on that day, and Danny Pedrosa, being the smallest and shortest and lightest of the Honda riders, was the one who was going to wear his tyres out the least, so perhaps yeah. I might be slightly disappointed that
1: Dovi and Mark beat him. Absolutely. I mean, Cal made the point that, yeah, like Danny Bedrosa is 22 kilos lighter, and that's over three stone, um, about three and a half stone, actually, in terms of weight difference there. Bedrosa being like barely 100 pounds soaking wet, um, the, the the lack of weight alone um, is, is less pressure on the tyre. So, again, like you think Bedrosa on pole position, Marquez struggling all weekend long was like could not keep the bike upright to save his life like you think Pedrosa probably should have won this Grand Prix and the fact he's finished third behind his teammate that is probably a disappointing result for Pedrosa in in a race that he probably should have won in the grand scheme of things and yeah this was a big open goal for Pedrosa and third and, and to lose ground to his teammate his teammate's now back in front of him in the championship and you know, Dovey, again, is, is refusing to go away. And Maverick, you know, he, he, can, he can take that 10th place and still be in a slightly comfortable championship position. So when he factor all of that in, Pedrosa probably is going to be a bit gutted it was only a third, which kind of says a lot about Pedrosa's form this season. Where third really isn't good enough in the grand scheme of things.
0: Yeah, it was almost one of those races where you you didn't want to lead it, um, which Danny Pedrosa no. did for a lot of those early stages until Dobby <laughs> until Dobby's patience finally gave out and he went past him. Um, you know, Danny was setting the pace out there, whilst the guys behind him were just saving their tyres, following him. Um, and in the end, perhaps Danny may wish he'd been the guy at the back of the group rather than the guy. Doing the pace setting out there. Um, let's talk about some of the other Ducatis who went well the weekend. Because as Dream Edge earlier on, it wasn't just Duvisiozo who shone last weekend. Uh, Jorge Lorenzo, who qualified on the front row for the first time on a Ducati, he's sort of ticking these things off as we go. He's had his first podium, he's led for the first time. Now he's had his first front row uh, on that Ducati, uh, out qualified Divizioso on the Saturday as well, which he hasn't always done uh, this year. Um, but for much of that race, it looked like same old story from Mugello, where Lorenzo led the early stages um, after a brilliant start and then gradually fell back. It was almost like the executive order was carried out on him again, where he went from first down to around sixth in a lap. Um, but to Jorge Lorenzo's credit, he um, he didn't allow Mugello to repeat itself. He got a second wind,
1: it seemed, towards the end and came back to fourth. Yeah, he dug in on that one. Again, again like you say, he was beaten up there at the front of the field. After he let he was getting past like two or three times a lap and his pace had dropped off like a stone in, towards the middle period of that race. But as you say, yeah, he stormed back at the end. It looks like he had I mean, found the confidence to uh, go a little bit harder towards maybe the last five, six laps of that race. He suddenly got back into the 46s and all of a sudden he was up there overtaking... You know, guys like Crutchlow and the Tech Freeze and Bautista, whose tires are completely gone by the end of the race, and yeah, like but again, it was a, it was a surging comeback, and it, it just makes you wonder, like, um, like Lorenzo has still got a tremendous level of pace underneath him when he when he has it. It's just I think he just needs to start getting around this bike and it's how just it's handled
0: naturally to him.
1: Is it? No, it's it's, it's 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 just not quite there yet. It's like a, it's 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 like the puzzle piece of the one missing part that's gone. And you're trying to find the last piece, and it just doesn't quite seem right without it's it. It's almost uh, like we're
0: under- I think we we cannot overstate how he's effectively having to tell his brain not to do things that it's been doing almost on autopilot for ten years.
1: Exactly, it's it's one of those things, and oh boy, it's 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 one of those things where like he's he's getting there. He's you can clearly tell he's getting there, and he's 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 gotten better as the season's gone on um he's he's going to learn a little bit from every time he's on that bike so you know he's he's learning like a little bit as time goes on race by race he's gonna get there eventually it's just not quite there yet and you know it's he's not he's not embarrassing himself out there but you have to question you know how far off he was when his teammate was doing such an incredible job at the front
0: (laughs) yeah yeah that's the thing i mean i'd love to know what hockey lorenzo's real feelings are because i mean he's doing a solid job at the moment getting to learn that Ducati, but he's not going to want his teammates to win the title, is he? <laughs> because no. it, it won't make Jorge look all that good, unfortunately, as, as good as it will look, make Dovey look. Um, Jorge Lorenzo is still playing, playing number two, unfortunately, at the moment in that team. Um, three Ducatis were up the front for, for much of that race. Danilo Petrucci was the other, um, qualified on the front row of the grid. Um, and before we come on to how his race ended, Dre, I think we better talk about how his race started because I've never seen a race start like that. It was bizarre where Daniel Petrucci got off the line and then veered straight left into Mark Marquez.
1: Someone didn't have their indicators turned on. Terrible. Um, I've never seen that before where, where Petrucci's gone all the way over to the other side of the track and literally bumped into Mark Marquez and that could have been an unmitigated disaster um, on many, many levels. Um, if anything, we got very, very lucky in that, 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 you know, they were both able to stay upright and then, you know, it was relatively harm free in the end. And yeah, just, that was a, like, Danilo just never does anything straightforward, does he? It's, there's always something out of the ordinary or something spectacular that causes this, but, um, still a, 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 a very good ride from Danilo again until, well, you know what's coming next, Lewis. Yeah, until
0: he crashed with two laps to go, unfortunately, in, no! uh, in turn five, um, whilst battling for fifth. He was just ahead of the two Tech 3 Yamahas um, of Folger and Zarco. Um, but again, as much as it ended on a negative for Petrucci, crashing out of fifth place and scoring no points another very positive weekend for him because again he had front row qualifying pace and he was allowed to keep a front row start this time rather than the yellow time that got deleted and sent him back to the third row he started third on the grid and was running with that leading group for a long long time again for Petrucci and he's he's looking like a rider again kind of like Dobby who's just growing in stature now
1: absolutely like he's he's really starting to put it together right now and he's doing a a, a very very impressive job indeed and Again, like he's turning himself from like a, a fringe top 10 dude into a guy that's challenging for podiums now on his day. He's doing a, a, a really, really solid job now, and he's taking that GP17 to the next level for Pramac. And it reminds me a lot of Ianoni from a couple of years ago. It was very, very solid indeed. And again, it's a shame that he crashed out, and it was a very lonely walk, um, a very lonely walk back to uh, to the paddock. We saw it on the hard camera afterwards, right? Like, everyone was selling the podium celebrating in Park Ferme, and Nilo is trutching his way back to the pit lane, just disgusted with himself. But um, he'll take that. Surely he's got to take a little bit of confidence away from that, knowing that yeah, I can run, I can run with the big boys now um, on, a, on a semi-regular basis. And again, that that could and maybe should have been a top five, and just didn't quite come for the Danilo in the end. It's a shame, but overall, like very solid indeed.
0: Yeah, he's looking he's looking better and better by the weekend, isn't he? Right, let's talk about the Yamaha weekend and in it. It kind of tells you how much the factory team struggled again, that we're starting with the Tech 3 Yamahas, the satellite team, which um, managed to get both of its riders ahead of both of movie star Yamaha's riders, uh, fifth and sixth for the Monster Yamaha Tech 3 team. And um, we'll come on to Joan Zarco in a minute, even though he was the rider who effectively won the battle of the two Tech 3 rookies. But um, for, for the, for the terms of the whole weekend, in terms of putting a full weekend together from Friday morning to Sunday afternoon, um that's the best surely trade that we've seen from Jonas Folger, and he's been pretty good already.
1: Exactly. He's, he's 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 again, he's still the only rider in the field to have scored points in every single race so far. He's not really put a foot wrong so far this season, and this was another really, really solid performance from him again here, and this this was his best MotoGP GP finish to date. Um again, two places higher than where he finished actually no, he finished sick for as well. I forgot about that one. My bad. But um yeah, another top six result. Very nearly beat his, his more experienced teammate, um, yeah, Johan Zarko. It's been the rookie sensation of the season so far. But despite that, yeah, he's absolutely nailed this one as well. Yeah, very very unlucky not to have um to to have beaten his teammate over the line. That was, that was a that was a, a shame we missed that. It was a w seemingly a right old scrap on the final between him and Zarko. Zarko narrowly coming out on top. But a very, very impressive performance anyway. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah, he'll take that. And like I say, he was quick all the way through the weekend because he was up there on Friday. He was in eighth quickest on the grid. So he managed to get himself um, ahead of Maverick Vinales on the grid um, and indeed ahead of his, his teammate Joan Zarco, because we had all four Yamahas in, in Q1. Um, and Folger was comfortably the quickest of the four uh, in that qualifying one Absolutely. session. He was four tenths quicker than Vinales and Rossi and Zaka, who were almost all on identical times. Folger did a 44-2 in Q1. Vinales, Rossi and Zaka were all on 44-6s um, in that session, which enabled Folger to get him much further up the grid than his teammate did. He was then quickest in Sunday morning warm-up, um, which... So it's made me sit up and take you notes thinking, and especially when he's up there at the back of leading group early on, thinking, is Folker going to win this one? Like, is he going to be the big surprise? So, given that we've been looking at Zarko, uh, for much of the year. Um, but to his great credit, Ray, Zarko ended up coming through and beating his teammate in the final lap. And, um, given that Zarco had to come from 14th on the grade fifth is no mean feat from him
1: phenomenal stuff again like Zarko seems to just, just just to get better and better as the race went on there and again he's again made another surging comeback in the end and fifth spin Johan Zarco sort of par score now he's he's really becoming like the best of the of the best independent in the field right now let alone best rookie but uh, He's the independent guy to be right now. He's leading the independent championship over his teammate Jonas now by 20, by 24 points, um, which is a lot given that Cal Crutchlow is in that same conversation. And Cal was like becoming the established elite guy right now. And yeah, you know, Zarco's coming in right, right now and is just racking off these great performances. And this was another one.
0: Yeah, if you look at the independent championship on its own, take the factory guys out of it. Um, Jean Zarco has a 24-point lead in that. He's 75 points, 24 ahead of Folger, um, who's second of the independents in, on 51 points. Then you've got Crutchlow, 45, Petrucci 42. Um, so Zarco is well ahead in that one um, at the moment. He's having a fantastic rookie season, as is Folger. And I, I was happy to see Folger get his moment, if you like, and get his uh, his moment in the limelight yeah. because he was he was so good all weekend. And really, he was he was comfortably the quicker of the two Tech Three riders until Sunday, with about five to go. Uh, when Zarco caught him and passed him. So, um, Folger definitely getting there. And, um, yeah, he'll be, he'll be one to watch, um, at Assen, especially if it rains, because we know from history how good Folger is uh, in wet conditions from his Moto 2 and yes. Moto 3 victories uh, in wet conditions. Uh, right, onto the factory Yamahas then. And, um, it has to be said, Dre, um, we, we kind of flagged this one up last week, given what we saw at Hareth. We kind of wondered whether Movistar Yamaha would struggle, um, on a low grip track surface. And, um, yeah it's fair to
1: say it went every bit as badly as they feared eighth and tenth respectively and that is that is uh, finishing behind both of last year's yamaha m1s not good not good at all this is this 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 is this this was a disastrous round for yamaha they did not need another one of these so soon after haraf only three rounds ago where again both of their riders struggled and you know, that time Maverick made made the better of the conditions. This time it was Valentino Rossi's turn, but 8th and 10th is, is an abysmal result, given Yamaha's usually very high standards. And again, they, 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 it seems that they just can't handle these low-grip, high-temperature sort of scenarios, where if there is no grip on the bike, the Yamaha will struggle. And this yeah, because, is what... Because they
0: knew, they knew for weeks that this problem was coming. They knew when they got <laughs> to Barcelona, this was going to happen to them. But they still, through... Pretty much trying everything through Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, couldn't find a way to fix it. Yeah, Maverick
1: Vinales had a dog's dinner of a weekend, like frustrated, kicking about, stomping about, was not happy at any point. This, it's like his mind had gone this this weekend. He seemed to lose a bit of himself under the pressure, I and mean, he it says it all when as soon as the race finishes, he hops off his bike and looks at the rear tire when. You also got to sit back and realize, oh, wait a minute, like it wasn't, it can't be just the tide because your teammate finished two spots ahead of you. Mm. Um, and yeah, just not a great weekend for Maverick and the Yamaha team in general. And just, yeah, a lot of, a lot of head scratches and not a lot of real answers made.
0: No, and it was interesting to look at the, the psychology between the two Yamaha riders who were both having appalling weekends. Um, it has to be said, but yeah. Um, it's it's an important moment in one respect that it's, as you say, Valentino finished ahead of Maverick. That's the first time he's done that on track this year, um, Mm -hmm. that they both made the finish and Rossi was ahead. Um, But it certainly struck me, Dre, how, how they both dealt with the challenge facing them differently because um, Valentino perhaps is more practiced at this, given that he struggled at a few races this year and somehow managed to pull a rabbit out of the hat and get a result, um, having looked uncompetitive most of the way. But yeah. every time we cut to the movie-style Yamaha garage, the yellow 46 side of it, we saw Valentino Rossi deep in discussions with his engineers and looking like they were having a good think about how they were going to get on top of this problem. And every time we cut to Maverick Vinales' side of the garage, we saw arms waving and tantrums being thrown, which was kind of striking, wasn't it, in that... When yeah. the pressure really got cranked up on that team, Maverick cracked.
1: Yeah, and that's very unlike Maverick, who's been the glowing number one guy on pure speed in this year's championship. And when the speed wasn't there, you could see the pressure. And you could see, um, again, you could just see that uh, Maverick crumbled a little bit here. And it, it showed that Maverick was running 15th most of that race. He was struggling to get in the points. And you could just see the open goal opening up for the Hondas as as the race went on. And, you know, he did end up finishing in 10, but, you know, a half-decent recovery, given a a few guys in front of him either crashed or made mistakes like Jack Miller, like Danilo Petrucci, Crutchlow, towards the end seemingly really struggled. And Maverick, as a result, ended up finishing P10. But this was the most vulnerable Maverick's looked as a rider all season long. And it kind of says it all, really.
0: Yeah, it is. It's, It's rather striking that he had after... Well, even after Mijello, he had a full race's worth of points in his pocket, and now he's only got seven. Um, so it's amazing how from the start of the season where he looked unbeatable, he looked invincible, and now that air of invincibility, and uh, it's all gone now for Maverick, and he's suddenly looking beatable. Um, and, yeah, if I'm Valentino, if I'm Danny, if I'm Marco, if I'm Andrea Vizioso, I'm looking at that body language, that garage, thinking, we can get to this guy. You know, If we can, we can put the pressure on this guy, he might crack. Um, and, you know, Maverick Mignales may well regret the, um, the sort of the way he dealt with that weekend. He only lost two points to his teammate. And in the end, you might look at 10th as six points gained rather than 19 lost in terms of potentially winning that Grand Prix. But the way he went about it, the way he dealt with the pressure did not fill me with an awful lot of confidence with that, that 10 to 11 for him winning the championship. As I say, I wouldn't be taking that with, um, you know, I'd need an awful lot of encouragement to take that at the moment because he looked like the pressure was getting to him. Um, at yeah. the weekend. And could be, could the one seeming grace, Dre, for Yamaha be that the low grip circuits that they struggle so badly on appear to have finished now and that perhaps this is the, this is the trough, this is the low point Yamaha season. And from
1: this point on, the graph should point upwards again. Just one problem. What if it rains? Mm. Because we've not we've not had Maverick run a MotoGP bike in the wet yet. Not really. Um, so that could well, also—he never really pulled up trees in the wet on the Suzuki, did he? No, and that could also be a factor in this. Maverick's not ridden a MotoGP bike at this level in the wet. Um, and Valentina Rossi has always been a, a rider that just doesn't make those sort of mistakes in wet conditions. He's he, like he's the guy that you'll be, you'll bet your mother's mortgage on. Well the only finish. the only wet
0: the only really well yeah we wet qualifying session actually in Argentina didn't we? Where we Valentina was all over the place and he outqualified Maverick.
1: Yeah, exactly. And Maverick again is known for his ridiculous outright speed. Something he just didn't have. If he like Maverick could be another Lorenzo in the case of a rider that's all about confidence, and if the confidence goes a lot of mavericks game might just crumble under the pressure and that could be interesting that the similarities there could be so strong
0: mm, yeah yeah it's 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 such a fascinating picture of this season that it, it is so unpredictable <laughs> and I, I love that we we're, we're talking about gp in these terms now where we genuinely don't know um, which way this championship's going to turn next. I mean, we know it's going to go to Aston next week, but I wouldn't even begin to predict who's going to be at the front and who's going to be at the back there next weekend. It's, it's so fascinating to watch, and, and Aston is always such a, a popular venue for MotoGP. I cannot wait. Uh, for next weekend right. um, let's take you through the MotoGP result then for the weekend um, Davizioso the winner second consecutive victory for him first time he's done that as a MotoGP rider uh, Danny Pedroza and Mark Marquez uh, having led the race and led the grid finished uh, second and third Mark beating Danny in the end having watched his teammate lead for the first half of the Grand Prix Jorge Lorenzo in fourth uh, so two Ducatis two Hondas in the top four uh, John Zarco and Jonas Folger, the two tech three Yamahas in fifth and sixth. Alvaro Bautista, who deserves a mention, claiming another high profile scalp. He beat Marquez at Migello. He beat the factory Yamahas in Barcelona to take seventh. Rossi, eighth. Uh, Hector Barbara got Vinales on the final lap. So even though Vinales made progress as the race went on, Barbara beat him on the final lap into turn one and held it to the flag uh, to take ninth. Vinales. Down in 10th Cal Crutchlow finished 11th having qualified down in 17th following a crash in Q1 his weekend never recovered from that uh, the final points positions were taken by Loris Baz, Scott Redding, Carol Abraham and Tito Rabat who beat the Suzuki's of Iannone and Gintoli to take the final point Paul Spargrove and Sam Lowe's were your other finishers Bradley Smith most notably didn't start the race having re-injured his little finger in free practice four, opening up an old wound in that one, and he was told to take the rest of the weekend off. Um, So uh, Bradley Smith, we'll see him again uh, in a couple of weeks' time at Assen, but uh, injury striking again for Bradley after an injury struck 2016 for him. Championship looks like this, then. Vinales on 111 points. Um, which is kind of amazing, where we talked at the start of the season after Argentina, where we were thinking maybe 300 points would probably be the finish line for a championship winner. Uh, Well, we're seven rounds in, and Vinales is only up to 111, and we're only nearly at the halfway point of the season now, so we might have to bring that one down a bit. Vinales on 111, seven ahead of Davizioso in second. Then came uh, Marquez and Pedroza, the Repsol Hondas, in third and fourth on 88 and 84, respectively. They've both gone ahead of Rossi, who drops to fifth on 83. 28 covers the top five, as we mentioned earlier on. Joan Zarco is a further 8 back in 6th then comes Lamento in 7th Folger 8th Crutchlow ninth, and Danilo Petrucci completes the top 10 on 42 points uh, Manufacturer's Championship is led by Yamaha but only 17 points covers the top 3 in that one Yamaha 14 ahead of Honda who are 3 ahead of Ducati then a sizable gap back to Suzuki Aprilia and KTM uh, who complete your 6 KTM having a weekend to forget as I mentioned one of their riders didn't even start due to injury right, let's go to Moto2 then. And after a pretty, pretty good Moto2 race in Mugello, Mugello, one of those weekends where even intermediate class provided entertainment, Um, Catalonia was not one of those weekends, Uh, unfortunately.
1: um, Dre Alex Marquez saw to that. Um, Yeah, um, Marquez thought, Okay, I'm going to lead by 1.8 seconds after the event. But you know what? I'm just going to go for a casual ride around Catalonia this weekend and nobody is going to stop me. Yeah, yeah, it's like I'm just gonna set this pace. Beat me if you dare, basically. Like and Bassini was like, you know what? No, it's all yours, mate, you can have it, basically. <laughs> and it was the race was effectively done by lap three. And you know, like Mark he's done this before, Alex Marquez, where he seems to love Kelly. I, mean, I remember him dominating in Moto three in his championship year in twenty fourteen, where I think he won by a good five or six seconds, and he's done a very similar job here where he, he led early you know, set the early pace and after that goodbye basically he was he was gone nobody had an answer for him and after that he could just, set, just settle into a rhythm not make any mistakes and just bring it home basically it was a it was just a completely dominant victory from Alex Marquez yeah, brilliant we've, start. yeah we've said that we've said this a lot already on this show about confidence
0: but he looks like another confidence rider doesn't he Alex Marquez in, in that um once he has a good start to the weekend, the rest kind of follows on from there because he looked unbeatable in qualifying. He set a a blistering lap at the start of qualifying and no one could even get near it until the final few minutes when Pessini nearly beat it to pole. Um, But Alex Marquez just basically set an early mark in qualifying and said, right, go and beat that, lads. And none of them could. Um, And again in the race, he got out front, was able to set his own rhythm and no one could match it. Um, And from kind of the early points of the season, particularly Argentina, where... Again, the pressure got to him um, in trying to beat his teammate. He saw Morbidelli go past him, and then the Red Miss came down, and down went Alex Marquez uh, on the final lap of that race. Um, this looked like much more like the Alex Marquez we were used to seeing, as you said, in Moto3. And When Alex Marquez is on this kind of farm, there are a few better than him.
1: Absolutely. like Again, like with Alex Marquez, it's always been a rough ride and a rough experience, but if he finds that sweet spot, he's unbeatable. Well, that's just, like, that is the level of upside that Alex Marquez has. Like, if he's on a decent track he likes with decent pace, you don't beat him. It's as simple as that. And Catalina's always been that track for Alex Marquez, where he's always been able to find a little bit more. And this was a peak example where he just just had that extra level of confidence, and next thing you know, he's out of there. And... Yeah, brilliant stuff. I wish he would just like this more often because, again, he would be looking at a true title contender.
0: Well, we might be anyway. I mean, it's a stark contrast, Alex's weekend, to the weekend of his teammate, Franco Morbidelli, <laughs> um, who was quick on Friday morning but never really had the pace of his teammate as the weekend unfolded. And this, for me, is almost more of a concern than what we saw in Dre, where Morbidelli crashed out of the, the race-winning battle. He was battling his teammate for the win there and fell off. Um,
1: but this is two straight races now where Franco Morbidelli hasn't even looked like running at the front. He's got the yips. Um, I, I I don't get it. I, we've mentioned, you we talked about this off off the air, Like Frankie Morbidelli has won four out of the seven races so far and has only got a seven-point lead, which says a lot about one, Thomas Lutie's consistency, which we'll get to in a minute, and two, the fact that he, he won at Le Mans fairly comfortably. Um, like, he broke Banyaya's chase on the, on that final lap and like he's, there's no one single incident you can point out where you could say, "Oh, okay, that might have spooked Morbidelli a little bit." I mean, sure, he had the crash at Haref, but he came right back and won at Le Mans around later, so you can't say it was that. And there's no real obvious place where Morbidelli could just say, "Okay, I've just dropped off like all this pace completely." It just doesn't make any sense to me. And next thing you know, he's gone from looking completely ridiculous up the front to being very mediocre and very subdued in terms of like like overall pace and ability. Morbidelli just didn't have it on this occasion. No, He was, he
0: oh. was 14 seconds behind his teammate at the flag, um, Franco Morbidelli, and he was only a couple of seconds ahead of the rookie Jorge Navarro, um, who finished 7th, and a great show for him and Quattararo, the two rookies, um, who were teammates a couple of years ago. Of course, he won a 3 at Navarro and Quattararo, 7th and 8th. Um, but, I mean, what is it you offered to say about these championships? You win it on your worst days. Um, yeah, and it's pretty clear at the moment. I know we've only seen well I say only 3 but it's 3 out of 7. And um, the race is 3 races he hasn't won. On his worst ways, he just doesn't appear to be limiting the damage.
1: No, and like it says a lot where we'll get to his his title is probably his number one title rival in a minute in Thomas Luty. But the duck Riders with high levels of upside need to have a decent second level where they can maybe go to a weekend they're not going to be particularly strong and maybe still finish on the podium. Thomas Lutie's been doing that pretty much all season long, where he may not have the ultimate pace to win a Grand Prix, but you know he's going to be in, in the leading pack almost every single time. Like, Morbidelli, he dropped off the front three in, in, at Magello and he dropped off the leading pack very quickly at Magello and was, you know, passed by his fellow um, Rossi Ranch member, Lorenzo Baldessari. Um So, yeah, it's one of those situations where he's he's throwing away big chunks of points now to Thomas Luti and Alex Marquez, who's been the informed rider of the, of the last three or four rounds now, and all of a sudden, we could have a three-way fight for the title between Morbidelli, Luti, and his own teammates.
0: Absolutely, Marquez is... Jumped into contention now, gaining 15 points on his teammate uh, with that victory um, in Catalonia. And of course, for finishing third in Magello, he gained points on him there too. Although, had he won that race, having led on to the final lap, he'd be even closer now um, to Franco Um But you mentioned Thomas Luti, who finished third, and although he's not necessarily taking the weight of victories that you'd expect a championship contender to, six podiums out of seven starts, his peak championship form, isn't it? That's how you win championships by consistent strings of podiums.
1: Exactly. And here's a fun fact for you. Thomas Lutie's been in Moto2 every year since its inception in 2010. So this is his eighth season in Moto2. God, that sounds really bad. Um, it's eighth season in Moto2. In any of the previous seven seasons, Lutie had not managed more than six podiums. This is his sixth podium of the year in the first seven rounds of 2017. So he's found another level of consistency where he's now like, okay, I don't have to win. I don't have to win all these rounds. I can just finish second or third and push the other guys into thinking, okay, I have to win this now basically. And that's worked out great for him. He's not, again, not really put a foot wrong in this entire season so far. And, Again, like Lucy all of a sudden, is, is putting together a very, very strong title campaign. I mean, maybe even stronger than he did last year where he came so close towards the end. And the, uh, Zarko made a bit of a dog's dinner of it towards the end. And the, the way Frankie's going right now, he's leaving the door wide open for Thomas to slam it in his face.
0: Mm, yeah, because uh, his form would be worrying me if I was Franco Morbidelli or, or Alex Marquez because you, you know he's going to win eventually. Thomas Lucci's always good for two or three wins, at least a season in Moto2. Um, and he hasn't won any yet, so you've got to think that Thomas Lutie's going to get over that that hump eventually and win a couple of rounds this year, and if he can keep himself in range um, whilst he's, in theory, running slightly below his peak level at the moment in Moto2, finishing seconds and thirds, then Mm. Lutie's going to have a real shot at this, Um, and Morbidelli is looking more and more under pressure (laughs) and under siege as the season goes on, and you know, we, we were genuinely talking, weren't we, after we won the first three rounds of the season, that it was almost time to go home. This championship is over.
1: Um, but as you say, we're surely talking about a three-way fight now. So you'd think with Alex Marquez there, looks like he's showing more of his true pace. I mean, a couple of really nice wins for him. He's not really finished outside of the top five so far this season. He's putting together a very Lutie-esque sort of season. The only difference is he's got a couple of wins to his name. And again, that having that little bit extra pace is probably what stopped Lutie from winning a championship or two by now. So, yeah, Alex Marquez, is, is he had a sloppy start, but he's reading his way back into contention now. And that's exactly what the youngster needs.
0: Yeah, a few other riders from this race who had results or rides that are worthy of mention. Miguel Oliveira is one of them, finishing fourth for KTM. Who, <laughs> Um, have pretty much proven now in the two rounds since Le Mans, have proven that Le Mans was nothing, nothing less than a blip.
1: Yeah, exactly, and yeah, I, I, I hope, I hope it's, it's the sign of, I hope it's the sign of more to come there as well as time goes on. That was again, I, I, it was, it was a nice blip. Bassini, again, like it's not really such a, like a blip because I mean he had a terrible start to the season. He didn't get into the into the points in the first three rounds for Atalanta. And then ever since Haref, he's he's not finished outside of the top five since he's now He's now had a win in the second place at Catalunya, and again he's sh- he's showing that that was no fluke. He's really put together a solid, um, a, k- a solid campaign since then. He's slowly clawing his way up the board. This is very nice from Basini. and He's not really had a Moto Two season like this so far, and Atalanta seems to have a good bike underneath him. So yeah, you know, more power to him. He's doing a great job.
0: Yeah, Bracini in second ahead of. Um, uh- Thomas Lutti, who, as I say, continued his pony run, Oliveira in fourth for KTM. Then came Lorenzo Baldessari, who um, has been kind of put in the shade this season by Luca Marini, his teammate at forward. But um, it's fair to say, Dre, given how his race in Mugello ended, uh, Lorenzo Baldessari, and um, by association, how Nakagami's ended, because um, Baldessari skittled him at the final corner or the first uh, lap. Um, uh, but <laughs> this weekend it was much more like the Baldessari that had some of us tipping in for a title challenge this season the guy that won uh, his first grand prix beating Alex Rins and Misano last year and for the first time really this season we looked like we were seeing that old Lorenzo Balassari back again a front row star and beating the championship leader Morbidelli to fifth
1: absolutely this yeah that guy had Bauer as as an outside bet for the title this season it's not quite worked out for him. a lot of Accident so far, but again, like like, for, he's done a solid job. Again, if he keeps the bike up right, he's up there with the best of them. And that was another solid result from Lorenzo. I think maybe watch we'll out for him towards the second half of the year. Maybe Masano like he like it, like it was last year, he got his first win. Maybe he'll steal the podium or better over there. Because yeah, absolutely, I completely agree that uh, as it stands right now, that that was better. That was the that was the Lorenzo of 2016 coming out there. And that was good
0: it was uh, race result then Marquez the winner second career winning Moto2 from Piscini and Luti that was your podium Oliveira in 4th for KDM ahead of Balazari and Morbidelli. Uh, Jorge Navarro uh, rookie top rookie in 7th ahead of Quattararo uh, and Vieje on the Tech 3 in ninth. Hafiz Sayarin in 10th um, for the Petronas race like Malaysia team rest of the points were taken by Takaki Nakagami what was he doing down in 11th uh, with Samiri Corsi in 12th, Isaac Vinales 13th, I mean, qualified in the top 10, Peco Bagnaglia, who qualified very badly, uh, made his way up to 14th for two points, and Andrea Locatelli, another rookie, um, so that's four in the points, Locatelli in 15th, just ahead of Yoni Hernandez. Um, championship standings, as I mentioned, are led by Franco Morbidelli, who took uh, only six in the end and 10 points. His lead is down to seven over Luti and 20 over Marquez. Uh, who's up to 103 points now. Miguel Oliveira is 40 off the lead in fourth. Pessini has leapt up to fifth on 69, ahead of Bagnaia with Nakagami in seventh, level with Dominic Agassi, who had a similarly bad weekend to Nakagami. Uh, They're seventh and eighth. Luca Marini ninth. He missed last weekend's race, incidentally, having injured himself um, in his crash that took him out of the Italian Grand Prix. Um, He's ninth on 41, and then comes Vieja in 10th for Tech 3 on 39 points. All right, on to Moto3 then. Um, to round us off from the circuit to Catalunya last weekend and we were talking about this one um, off offer before we started another last lap of the gods we've seen a few of them in recent years um, Mark Marquez had one of them in the, uh, the final lap of the Philippe Island Grand Prix in GP 2015 um, we've seen
1: another this year from Joanne Mierdre Joanne Mierdre and the lap of the gods praise be praise be um, what an astonishing final lap that was from Joanne who had. Crossed the line on the, on the final lap in that leading pack. I think it was about five or six guys um, in that. It uh, was fourth going over the line and in that leading pack, I think five or six dudes, and he pulled out a last lap that was I think eight tenths of a second faster than anybody else on circuit. Um, ridiculous. Um, and not only that, the way he passed me, he bullied his way past Bastianini through turn one, got Fenati at turn ten, and then elbowed. Um, Jorge Martin out of the way on on, on the turn thirteen, coming down towards the, the new chicane. Um, stunning stuff from Mir. Mia like he, he was like, "I am going to win this race or crash trying." It was, it was insane. It's like I mentioned this to off boy off the air. It's like mir has got like three extra meters of braking in him compared to any other rider, where he can pull off passes where you would never expect another guy to come through like that. Just stunning stuff.
0: Yeah and uh I, I said this off air before we started as well. Um that's what champions do. Um you know win, win races like that and it, it, that's kind of what he's looking like isn't he at the moment John It's In many ways so many times last year we saw these crazy monetary races with so many men up the front and yet so often Brad Binder at the clutch would be the guy that would come out and win it. Um and Joanne Mir seems as if he's picked up that very same
1: quality. Mm-hmm. absolutely that that ability to you know scrap a little bit in there and you know not be afraid to get your to get your elbows dirty to get it done and that's what Mier's had, i think had to learn because Fanati's made an entire career off that sort of maneuver where you know he's he's, he's got his elbows out, he's blocked past people he's been very aggressive he's found alternative lines of trying to overtake nudes. so yeah like if mir's learned picking that up as time goes on then you know let's just go whew, let's just say uh well, at least to me, at least I think this could be a championship-winning victory because mm. he's now got a forty-five point lead in the championship as we comes towards the halfway point. And like in terms of consistency, right now, no one's in the same ballpark. He's won four out of the first seven already, and that is Formoto three very impressive indeed. It's like it reminds me a lot of Brad Bin this title effort last year.
0: Hmm. Yeah, he's lucky. He just seems to have uh, that extra level that, that a few of the riders don't have the moment. particularly in these close battles. He just seems to be able to find his way to the front at the right time. Um, Migello was a bit too chaotic for him as it happened. He finished in seventh in that race. But yeah, by and large, he looks a class above everybody else at the moment uh, in Moto3. Romano Ferrati finished just behind him in second place. Um, that's his first ever podium in Barcelona, by the way, for Fanati, so that's why he seemed rather happy, happier than you'd think he would be, given that he'd just been beaten to a win. Um, but Fanati taking second there, to take second in the championship as a result. Um, but the guy that I think most of us are feeling sorry for, Dre, is Jorge Martín, who um, is quickly building a reputation as the Tom Sykes of Moto3. Five <laughs> poles now, out of seven, um, which, is, which is sensational. Um, but still no victories, unfortunately, for Jorge Martín. And yeah. For much of that race. I mean, we saw so many slipstreaming efforts down to turn one, but for lap after lap in that second half of the race, Martin just kept leading it. He just kept holding them all off into turn one. Looked like he had it under control. And then Joanne Mir ambushed him three corners out.
1: Yeah, it's again like this his overall one lap speed is absolutely astonishing. I mean, that pole position where Everybody, like, it, it, it was a farce where basically everybody had, had tried to basically play a, the, the world's most dangerous game of chicken, as who can come out and set a hot lap at the end and who can tow off each other. And Martin comes out on his own and smashes the entire field by two thirds of a second. Yep. <laughs> um, embarrassing for the rest of the Moto Three field, quite frankly. Yeah, who um, needs yeah, uh, who needs a toe when Jorge Martins in the building? And yeah, like you say, four podium finishes so far this season, but no first victory just yet. But he's made such an, a massive leap this season where he's gone from, you know, slightly underwhelming Red Bull Rookies champion to legitimate title threat. Um, in the space of one off-season. And yeah, he's right up there now. Like he, Again, he's going to be very unlucky. I mean, that first win is coming. Um, it's going to be a matter of when rather than if.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of wonder whether, yeah, like I say, it's going to come soon. I mean, Assen next up is a circuit that Red Bull rookies have gone through in the past, so he'll have more experience around there than he's had at some other circuits, particularly Barcelona, where you know a lot of the Cev guys will know that place very well. But Martin never went through that route; he went through the Red Bull rookies route. So you've got to wonder whether Aston is a circuit that he'll pretty much enjoy in a couple of weeks. And as I say, he's had five poles already uh, this season, so it's yeah. not as if he's slow <laughs> anywhere. Um, but he might just need that extra little bit at a circuit that he knows particularly well and goes well around. For instance, just get over that final hurdle and win the Grand Prix. And yeah, I, I have to say I. Don't particularly have favourites in Moto 3, but I was gutted for Martin. I was I just for yeah. it to come so close and just lose it at that final chicane to, to a brilliant piece of opportunism by by Meir by Joan Mir on that final lap. And um, was a real shame for Martin. Um, you mentioned the qualifying fast, so we might as well talk about this now. We we're going to save it to the end of this Moto 3 chat, but this is getting beyond a joke now, isn't it? In Moto 3, and it how can it has been for a while. Martin himself got a 12 place grid penalty um, for towing and for dawdling on the racing line in uh, Mugello qualifying. Um, we saw a few others, including Aaron Canet get three place grid penalties for doing a similar thing in Barcelona. Um, it wasn't a good look for the class, was it? With four minutes of qualifying to go to have a completely empty track while everyone waits for someone else to go out. Um and it's led for Valentino Rossi, amongst others, who, of course, doesn't race in Moto3, but does own a team in that class, um, to yeah. suggest that Moto3 should adopt the Moto GP split qualifying Q1, Q2 format, which, in fairness... World Superbikes does offer to its lower classes, it does operate that that yeah. system in World Super Sport and World Super Sport three hundred. And it's almost getting to the point with Moto three qualifying resembling a bit of a farce and Moto two qualifying resembling a snooze fest that perhaps MotoGP might think about
1: adopting that system for all three classes too soon. Yeah, I mean I, again I don't think I don't see any reason why it couldn't work. I mean, but yeah, like, like you say. I completely agree that yeah, you know, it's like Moto 3 flight is it's becoming a joke. And actually, you could argue that the, the penalties yeah. don't seem to be a deterrent, do they? No, like free, like most guys will take a like a 3 penalty. <laughs> we saw Jorge Martin, yeah, 12-place grid penalty. He was leading the race by turn by, by by basically by lap three. It didn't matter in the end. Like these penalties are not big enough to make a real difference. And you know these riders will always take any advantage they can get right now. And it's a shame because it is it's a mess and it should be a really exciting session and yet, like you said, four and a half minutes to go and no one's on track. That's stupid. That's silly. Um like it's the most critical part of qualifying and, and you you should be frantic, it should be mad dash last minute laps you know, to, to basically close out the session and yet everybody's saying, like, No, you go out, no you go out, no, you go out or, No, I want to get a toe off you, bruh and it's like, no. And it just keeps happening. It's a mess, and it's silly on on every level. And it's embarrassing. Something needs to be done about this. And you know, maybe running just two qualifying sessions, you know, splitting the field in half. Maybe maybe two twenty-minute sessions could could work. Sure, the 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 Super Bowl one and two format that we get in Moto GP and World Superbikes could easily work as well. Um, sure, just anything to break the pack up a little bit. And you know, maybe just try and differentiate true qualifying speed from these stupid towing situations.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, let's look at both sides of it. I mean, Moto, he has to say, Moto3 qualifying, it it wasn't a good look and I was so delighted, I think as we all were, that Hockey and my team made them all look stupid by taking pole on his own by a country mile. Um, But, yeah, that Q, Q1, Q2 format would work in a sense that it shortens the sessions down to 15 minutes so that you you know, you know could still try this tactic if you want, but you've got much less of a time to do it. So you've only got 15 minutes, so you haven't really got time to sit around and wait for two minutes for someone else to follow because that leaves you very little time to get a lap in. Um, mm-hmm. You've only got about, by the time you've finished faffing around trying to get a tour, you've only got five, 10 minutes to go. Um, the one worry I would have with this though, Dre, is that, If you do adopt the split qualifying with the combined practice times to set the field for qualifying 1 and 2, wouldn't you just bring this problem forward
1: to FP3? Yeah, I guess um, that's a very good point. Where again, yeah, you're gonna run every bike in FP3, and that's gonna be that's the thing about this format. FP3 is now a glorified qualifying session. That's, that's certainly the case in MotoGP, especially when 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 there's changeable conditions over a weekend, where maybe the, the Friday's been a washout and the Saturday runs perfectly. It, it turns FP3 into basically basically pre qualifying. Um, in a sense and uh, yeah we we could see that in moto 3 as well and again that's just as bad it's just as equally dangerous and silly just because it's in an fp3 and not a qualifying session so it doesn't really stamp out the problem uh it it just moves it to a different session which uh, which in today's moto gp is arguably as important as qualifying now where you don't want to be in q1 having to run extra lap times right now so yeah, I, I, I totally see your point there. You know, it, it's it's moving a problem rather than solving it, really. Yeah, I think the only, the only thing I could think
0: of, really, just sort of thinking out loud now, is to basically increase the penalties for, for this. And, you know, there's very little you can do to increase it. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head is basically be completely draconian with it and say, if anyone gets caught doing this, pit lane start. Um, and and that I think that would stop it. Back so it of start, the grid Yeah, back of the grid or pit lane starts. If you start from the pit lane, you're you're setting off five, ten seconds after the field has got away and you're not getting that back. You're basically gonna be running around at the back of the grid for the whole race. Um, yeah. so I think that would put a stop to it because riders know that they there is no they're basically the potential benefit is completely outweighed by the potential loss of getting caught and getting a penalty for it because your weekend is ruined the penalties at the moment being handed out aren't ruining a riders weekend they're basically giving them a bit more of a, of a handicap but as you said hockey martin proved that you can just overcome that if you're good enough in the early stages if you can go full jonathan ray in the first couple of laps and, and carve your way through um so yeah mono three has a difficult balancing act here in terms of how it deals with this problem because it's created a class which in by the nature of the bikes and the way the bikes work and you know the the premium on a slipstream you almost need a slipstream unless you have one of the premium bikes on the grid you need a slipstream for a good lap time unless you're hawk mrt not everyone has that blistering single lap pace so a lot of riders do go into qualifying knowing that their whole their whole strategy and their whole you know weekend and their whole hopes of getting a good position hinge on getting a toe so they will do whatever they can to try and find one but Um, it's just creating a dangerous situation in a dangerous environment with riders just sitting around waiting and as I say it just makes the class look silly Um, so Moto3 needs to try and find a solution to this and try and just get a unanimous agreement amongst the riders that it's got to stop and that um, the the punishments for this will truly deter riders from trying this strategy because they clearly aren't uh, at the moment. Um, back to the race that we saw on the Sunday though, and Air Barchini having his best weekend so far. Um, he does always tend to go well around Barcelona. It has to be said, even as a rookie, he got on the podium there for his second, to Alex Marquez, as a rookie in 2014. Um, but given that he moved to Estrada Galicia to try and win a world championship, um, this is kind of what we've been waiting for for Barchini—a fourth place is kind of the minimum we were
1: expecting from him. Yeah, this still isn't anywhere near his best. Like, he's, he's won a Grand Prix. He's been a, a top flight runner. He's also had ridiculous qualifying speed, and none of that's really come to the table so far this season, which has been a shame. So, yeah, I completely agree that. Uh, all right, now, Anea is struggling, to say the least. He's not showing any of the pace that made him so prolific last year. And, yeah, he he was my pick for the title this season. And he's barely in the top 10 right now over Nicolo Bouliger, another equally disappointing guy um, so far this season. But yeah, it's, it's strange. I mean, Nicomir, this was a good result for an AI. He'll take that fourth place as a confidence booster, but as it stands, this is not the season we were hoping for.
0: Yeah. I was about to mention him. At least he didn't tip Bulliger for the championship as, as, as Bex and I did. Um, because he's, he's struggling even more at the moment, um, which I think is a surprise to all of us where he's, uh, um, swanning around at the moment down in ninth in the Grand Prix at the weekend, having basically found himself in the wrong group early on and having to try and jump across the gap. Um, so in that Grand Prix and he's in a similar position in the championship at the moment. He's not even anywhere near championship contention. Um, Top five in that Grand Prix in Barcelona were Honda riders. Mia Fanati, Martín, Bastianini and Canet, the second of the Astro Galicia bikes. And yet again, Dre, we seem to be saying this an awful lot. The guy flying the flag for KTM in that leading group was Marcos Ramirez, uh, who finished in sixth place. And um, interestingly, for those who don't follow the Manufacturers Championship in Moto3, um, the points scored for each team are basically the points for the first rider home. Um, only, Only one rider in each race will score points for any manufacturer. So obviously in Honda's case, the guy who scored their points was Mia for winning the race. But now if you break it down from each race, Marcos Ramirez is now KTM's top point scorer in the Manufacturers Championship. He's not top scorer in the championship, but in terms of who's basically been their leading rider most often, it's been Marcos Ramirez in the seventh race, seven races we've seen so far. And this is a guy, Dre, who will be putting himself at the top of a lot of team shopping lists for next year.
1: Yeah, like if you look about the guys, I mean we already know one guy in Moto 3 that's guaranteed to be in Moto two next season. I think Fanati's got a good chance of moving up as well. Maybe keeping an eye on Canet and Gianconinio as well. as um, guys to watch that, that could get bumped up. We've seen we saw a lot of guys get bumped up last season after all. So keep half an eye on that. But yeah, as it stands, like Marcos Ramirez, like he's proving that yeah, yeah, you can drag a KTM into play on, on a consistent basis and Nobody had Platinum Bay real estate being anywhere near where they are right now. So this is just nothing but, you know, phenomenal stuff from Marcos Ramirez pretty much all season long, and he's been in the mix almost every Grand Prix this season for KTM, (laughs) as has his teammate Darren Binder, who's maybe shown even more upside but also more mistakes. So, yeah, right now, Marcos Ramirez could be the number one guy to keep an eye on, maybe for Aki Ayo and the factory team, given that Nicolo Antonelli has been well, what's the nice way of putting this? A bust so far this season, to say the least.
0: Yeah, uh, Aki Ayo, for once, picked the wrong, he backed the wrong horse this year. He picked the wrong yeah. rider. Um, Ramirez, as you say, impressing so much. Ayo will certainly be looking at him, I would have thought, given that they're a KTM team at the moment, and they've seen Ramirez go well on a KTM. Um, Leopard, I think another. Joan Mir is the rider on the move for next year. We'll tell him where he's going in Moto2 uh, in a moment. Um, but he's going out of that Leopard team. Livio Aloy hasn't exactly been pulling up trees in the, uh, in the second half of that team, let's face it. Um, and Ramirez has links to that squad, given that he rode for the Leopard team in the Junior World Championship last year, finished the runner-up in the championship to Lorenzo Della Porta. Um, so in, in many ways, he would be returning home if he went there, uh, Marcus Ramirez, yeah. you know, given that he's ridden for that team before. Um, but that would involve a switch from KTM to Honda. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether Ramirez would be too keen on that. Um, but as we say, he is certainly a rider that many, many teams will be looking at because pound for pound, it's difficult, apart from Mia, it's difficult to pinpoint a rider who's done as good a job this year as Ramirez in Moto3. He has been spectacular. Um, the race result then in Moto3 didn't quite live up to the standards of Mugello. It has to be said, but then that is asking an awful lot. Just the uh, just the 11 riders in the leading group at the finish on this occasion. Oh, no. Mia the winner from Fanati and Martín Bastianini fourth ahead of Canet. Then came Ramirez as I mentioned first at the KTM's home in sixth position, uh, Fabio Di Gianantonio, who led a lot of the race, finished seventh in the end, uh, ahead of Andrea Migno, uh, Migello winner, of course, and Bulliger, the two Sky VR46 riders, eighth and ninth. Tatsuki Suzuki, was another rider who's quietly going about his business and doing a good job, uh, he finished tenth um, for the Simoncelli Sig 58 team. Uh, rest of the points rounded out by Nicolo Antonelli, first of the Red Bull IO bikes. John McPhee, um, remember when we used to talk about him as a title threat? Right? Yeah, who? me neither. Uh, McPhee in 12th, Ertel 13th, Marco Bazecchi who uh, handed Mahindra some rare points in 14th, uh, and Ben Schneider, the second of the Red Bull I.O. Riders, in 15th place to take the final World Championship point. Um, championship standings, as Dre mentioned earlier on, Mir has a 45-point lead now. It's Fanati who's back into second, ahead of Canet. Uh, they're three points apart. Canet is uh, on 85. That's a deficit of 48 to the championship leader. Di Gian Antonio is a further five, back in fourth. Then comes Mignot in fifth on 76, tied with Martín. Uh, Mignot ahead by into the fact that he's won a Grand Prix so far, and Martín has not. Uh, McPhee in 7th on 67, then comes Ramirez on 53, Juanfrancovara, of course, podium man uh, at Mugello and front row starter in the Catalunya Grand Prix, but he tumbled all the way out of the points to 17th, uh, no idea why, but that's where he finished, Bastianini is 10th, just behind him, a point further back, uh, Bulliger is 11th on 35 points, so he is 98 off the championship lead. Incredibly, uh, after seven rounds, um, but Jeez. it's 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 kind of resembling last year, isn't it, Dre? And that Mia has 45 points in his pocket over a second place, and then from second to sixth is just 20, uh, is 12 points from Fanati down to Martin. Um, so it looks like Moto 3 is basically a, a giant, great big clusterfuck. But one guy is just stretching ahead of the lot, and uh, Mia at the moment looks like he's gonna have a similar level of dominance than Brad Binder last year. It's ex- exactly,
1: it's, it's looking that way. Where you know. Me Mir's maybe not had quite as many spectacular um, performances quite so far, but he's he's getting the job done and he's been more efficient than any other rider in the field right now where everybody else, again, has had bad races, tripped over each other. Joanne Mir is, is, is in play and uh, has been in play every race so far this season maybe barcota. Hmm. Um, and, that, and that's that's just the level that the, the, the mirror is on. No one else is this consistent right now, and that's what's making the difference.
0: Hmm. Yeah, next round of the championship then is at Assen next week. And um, for those that didn't see the change to the schedule last year, they race on Sundays now at Assen. Um, so you don't need to uh, think about uh, booking your your Saturday off. The races are on the Sunday. Um, but uh, an interesting tweak to the uh, schedule, for those who haven't seen it, they've, <clears> they've moved the schedule around. No idea why they've done this. Um, but Moto 3 opens the day at 11 o'clock UK time. Moto GP follows at its usual time slot. and then Moto 2 is after Moto GP for no reason that I could think of. Um, it's almost like they're asking the uh, Dutch fans to get out of the circuit early. Um, but uh, yeah, their Moto 2 will then follow at like 2:30 UK time this weekend. So. Uh, yeah, slight change to the schedule. Oh, what it does mean, though, for those of you that don't work Sundays, like the two of us, um, mm. it means that you can uh, set your alarm a bit later. You don't have to get up at ten a.m. this time for us three; you can get up at eleven for it. So, uh, that's the Yay. change to the schedule for next weekend. MotoGP next round is at Assen, the Dutch TT, in a week's time. Right, onto the news. And uh, the Speedway GP series took its fourth stop of the year. Um, this one in the Czech Republic. Uh, for the fourth round of the championship, the Czech Republic GP. And Jason Doyle, whose uh, hopes of a championship last season were robbed cruelly through injury at the penultimate round, which meant he couldn't take part in the title decider took a much and hard-earned victory, much-needed victory as well, uh, in the Czech GP that has moved him right into the championship shake-up. He took the victory ahead of Greg Hancock in the final. Um, He's another rider who really needed a good showing after a poor start to his title defence. Hancock, having headed into the final as the form rider, having won four of his six rides prior to that point, um, was beaten by Doyle, who only won one race prior to the final, um, but took the outright victory Uh, Hancock, the top point scorer on the night with 18 points, which has given his championship campaign... A sizeable boost um, with Václav Milik and Patrick Dudek, the championship leader, completing the four riders in the final. Chris Holder, Martin Vachilov, Antonio Limbach and Peter Kilderman knocked out in the semifinals. Those were your fifth to eight point scorers. Uh, Ty Wolfenden, the big name, missing from that list. He did not make the semis again and he is in danger at the moment of missing out on the top eight altogether. Uh, championship standings, top eight by the way, the reason it's significant is top eight for those that aren't familiar get an automatic spot on next year's um, Speedway GP grid. Um, So anyone from 9th backwards will either need to go through the qualifiers or earn themselves a wild card onto next season's championship uh, entry list. Dudek leads the championship on 51 points. That's one ahead of Doyle in second. Vachilik is third on 544. That's seven off the lead. One ahead of Lindgren in fourth. Matt who Bex has been watching very, very closely, had a poor round, 13th in the uh, standings for the Czech GP. He only scored five points from his five rides. Um, he's down to uh, fifth in the championship now, just ahead of Peter Pavlitsky in sixth. Greg Hancock, who was out of the top eight prior to this round, has jumped all the way up to seventh on 38 points, one ahead of Ty Woffinden, who is precariously sitting in eighth in the last of the top eight spots, four points ahead of Emil Saifudinov. And now back to MotoGP news and back to Barcelona, because they stayed on after the Sunday Grand Prix for an official test. And Marc Marquez setting the pace in that test. Um, as I mentioned earlier on when we were talking about tyres, he was much happier to have a symmetric tyre underneath him rather than the asymmetric tyre they ran in the Grand Prix at the weekend. Um, but the big story, I guess, if we're looking beyond the obvious names Dre, the big story to come from that Catalonia test was a welcome return to MotoGP action for one Alex Rins.
1: Yay! Um, gosh, it's been, it been—it feels like forever he's been gone. And, yeah, hasn't uh, ridden since what? Cota? No. Yeah, I think I think no. Was it was it Argentina? Where he did the, where he where did the ankle uh, yeah, in? I think that was the time he raced. I think he, he took part
0: in the Cota weekend and then pulled out after free practice.
1: Yeah, it's just I think he was just in too much pain after free practice one. Yeah, I think I think that's what did it. Yeah, and he's not ridden the bike since, and that was God over two months ago um yeah it's just not it's it's been a it's been a season from hell so far for not just Suzuki but Rins in particular who had such a great start you know finishing in the top 10 on his debut and just yeah and from there not really working out and it's point, a shame Suzuki need him too. yeah absolutely um whew. um yes yeah, it's, it's in the way he and only struggling right now like Rins coming back now could not be at a better time
0: yeah, yeah, we didn't even mention Suzuki in our review of uh, the Catalunya Grand Prix, and that's because neither of them even finished in the points um, in that Grand Prix. Although, um, Andrea Iannone, who's uh, placing the team, has been placed under some sort of question over the course of the Catalunya weekend. He only beat Gintoli, his standing teammate, by a second and one position, um, which probably says more about Iannone than Gintoli. As good as Gintoli did as a standing... Um, Wrong! <laughs> yeah uh hashtag still with Ginters um from yes. uh from my co-host um but for you know to be down out of the points on that suzuki kind of says a lot about how poorly he's going And that one just that partnership just isn't working out is it at the moment For you know nice. and, and suzuki um and you kind of wonder whether yeah you know we might not be seeing him in that team next year and they'll be desperate for rins to come back because he's surely the long-term prospect that they signed when they uh brought in two new riders for this season. Rins was the guy they'll have been pinning their long-time hopes on, so they'll be hoping they can get him back on the bike and fully fit again, as we all do, because I think we all rate Rins very highly, and um, yes. he's such a nice kid as well, so we want to see him um, succeeding again and getting those injuries out of his system, because he had an injury hit end to last year. Um, more news then surrounding MotoGP, and we'll um, now turn our attention to Cal Crutchlow, and this is where the silly season starts, because um, it tends to get early year on year, where the... Uh, the moves for 2018, or the next season in this case, um, start to be discussed. Cal Crutchlow has been the talk of the um, panic because he's signed a new two-year deal, according to motorsport.com. It's not been announced officially yet, but that's what we believe has happened. Cal Crutchlow is signing a new two-year deal with HRC, which will see him stay with LCR with factory support. And um, before we come on to who his likely teammate's going to be, because it looks like he may have a teammate this time in 2018, Dre, um... Cal Crutchlow as poorly as his weekend went in Catalonia where he crashed in Q one and only finished eleventh. Um, this is, seems like a partnership that seems to work for all parties. This Crutchlow LCR and indeed HRC.
1: Yeah, Cal, you know he's he's always been a bit inconsistent, but he's always got potential for great results. We saw it last year. He broke that glass ceiling and had two wins to his name last year. And you know, like there's just no one out there that's better really right now than Crutchlow for that sort of spot right now. And You know, it it works for everybody. LCR's got a top tier rider they can have on their bike. It's a solid satellite bike with factory backing, and it's a nice third option for Honda to score points if the the factory team struggles. And yeah, it, 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 it works out for everybody right now. That's like it's 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 all good. So yeah, why not keep that going for another couple of years? I know Cal was being courted by Suzuki and a bunch of other guys as well. He was. Hot property, but uh, looks like Cal staying put.
0: Yeah, and it seems as if this this arrangement where we he often we often see him testing sort of prototype um, development parts for Honda, uh, for Repsol Honda. It seems to really work for him because of course if he if these parts that he runs in practice sessions and in races work, he benefits because he gets a good result out of it, and also um, the team and Honda benefit. So yeah, Cal is really enjoying this sort of semi factory status that he's got at that team at the moment. Um, by running effectively factory parts, but with the LCR team. Uh, and that looks like it's going to continue for another two years. Um, his teammate next year, we look, we appear to be getting a second LCR Honda on the grid again, which we haven't had um, for a couple of years since Jack Miller left the team. And of course, their notable title sponsor left the team. Um, probably best we don't go back into the details of why they left. Um, but it looks like they may be getting some um, money on the bank or money on the bike from Itamitsu next year which leads to Takaki Nakagami, who hasn't really pulled up many trees in Moto2 this season, it has to be said. Um, nope. But we do know his quality, because he's won Grand Prix before in Moto2. It looks like we may get Takaki Nakagami on the <laughs> Moto GP grid next year
1: on a Honda, which basically, if you're Japanese, everybody wins. Yay! Um, exactly. I mean, we've, we've mentioned it before. like the Whatever happened to the days of Japan having such a strong influence on bike racing at the highest level that Smith's... It's completely tailed off in the last uh, half decade or more or so, and it's been real. It's been a real shame that uh, Japan's not got the influence it used to have, where that's concerned. And yeah, um, I'll be delighted if Tetsuaki gets into the top goal. So, I mean, let's be honest, he's not had the best season so far, and not entirely his fault. In fairness, he has been. He's been the unfortunate of a lot of bad luck in in this season so far, which is amazing given he he was promised a top tier ride if if he could finish in the top three, looks well, like he's going to get it, whatever happens, and I'm glad they admits he'll flip in the bill. We need a Japanese rider in the top class, and Dak has always been solid. He, and he again, another breakthrough rider of last year, getting that first class win he so desperately wanted after coming so close in 2013. Um, when he was riding for um it's So, yeah, again, I'm, I'm delighted to see Taka get the opportunity. And, again, like LCR, it's nice. Icho U- 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 is one of the real good guys in bike racing, so I'm glad that he could be getting a second bike in there as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it looks like there's a real wave again of young Japanese riders coming through, partly thanks to this Asia Talent Cup, which is, which is now sponsored by Inamitsu, as it happens. So they've got a vested interest in that, in that <laughs> championship, working out and producing young talent, so it looks like, obviously, we've got this British Talent Cup and we've got the, the CEV, of course, uh, that's predominantly run in Spain, but it is the Junior World Championship. Um, the, they're all producing talent now, and the the, the future is bright for, for motorcycle racing in general because there is talent from all over the world now um, coming through. And, of course, in, in Moto3 at the moment, we have um, Ayumu Sasaki, who's impressed uh, at various stages of the season. Of course, he's the reigning Asia Talent Cup and Red Bull Rookies Champion. Um, we've got Tatsuki Suzuki, who's, in the last couple of races, has really emerged as a top-10 threat. Um, in that Supercelli yeah. team. And we've got Keito Toba, the young Japanese, who's riding for that Honda Team Asia squad at the moment in the Moto3 yeah. World Championship alongside the Thai rider, whose uh, name I'm not going to attempt to repeat again. Um, there's only so many oh, times I can get that one right. Um, <laughs> Toba who rode in the uh, C.E.V. last year for Australia Galicia. Really? Um, Keito Tober, um, not exactly pulling up many trees so far, but he is a clear rookie. He was only born in the year 2000 which tells oh, you how young K- K- Kato Tober is, but <laughs> uh, he's only uh, 17. So um, yeah, he's got many, many years ahead of him, but uh, another wave of young Japanese riders coming through, um, which is good for the sport. So Nakagami looks like he's going to be the first of them into MotoGP again, but there may be a few close behind him in years to come. Uh, other riders, though, in terms of MotoGP who may be going the other way, and that means out of MotoGP, unfortunately, includes Sam Lowe's. Um, that is not the reason Bex isn't here, but it's probably for the best that she isn't. Um, yeah. Because, um, yeah, we'd be getting an ex- expletive-laden rant coming. Um, but I think in this case, we totally understand if Bex was doing just that, Dre, because um, Sam Lowe's, for for all the criticism we could give him, um, in that he's a little bit crash-happy, and he's, he's not exactly what? had the... The most stellar of rookie campaigns so
1: far, but his team is selling him up the river at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, it's like they're setting him setting him up to fail right now. And I mean, it's I, I don't know the prettiest team boss was basically um, I I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. To be fair, I know he was saying something along the lines of he needs an improvement and soon. Basically, and I and I just sit here thinking that's hogwash. It's like How surely, like surely, if you're a prettier, you know what you you knew what you were getting yourself into when you hired Sam Lowe. So you, you'd spent a year of the team already in a testing and you know in a testing capacity. You knew what you were getting. Sure, he struggled a little bit towards the second half of last season. He was a little bit crash happy, but you've made an investment in this kid, and to you know, to think about oh, you know, you could be already throwing him away after just half a dozen races in MotoGP, especially when you've got a very experienced teammate in the Alicia Spagrow next door, and you're giving him a, a blatant advantage um, in terms of equipment and machinery. You, you, your, Alicia's getting all the new parts straight away. Sam Lowe's is playing catch-up. So again, you're inherently making your team lopsided, and you yourselves can't even get your bike sorted out in qualifying two, where you, your second bike is not ready to go, and you, your, your own rider you've invested in is only getting half a qualifying session to play with. Um, I don't think you can point all of the all of the all of the blame, um, so to speak, in the corner of of Sam Lowes in this case. And I know Lowes has not is never really been the most consistent uh, of riders in his in his Moto Two and early MotoGP GP career. But at the same time, like. <sighs> If you were this unsure about him, why did you sign him in the first place a year and a half ago? I, I don't understand like what suddenly made your stock of him drop so much and so rapidly and so quickly when you clearly seeked him out and wanted to put your name on him very quickly. So if you're going to do that, write out your investment rather than looking to cut ties at the first possible opportunity. I think that's bullshit.
0: Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Saturday was just amateur hour stuff, I'm afraid, from a Aprilia, in that in Q1, Sam Lowe's couldn't get the... His, his number one bike wouldn't start. Um, I'll tell you why in a moment, because Sam Lowes kind of illustrated himself. He gave, he gave a bit of an insight into what the problem was or what the team were up to. Um, yeah. So the first bike wouldn't start. Number two bike was not ready to go. Um, so it obviously took them half the session to get that bike. This is only a 15-minute session here, and he's racing for grid position um, here, is Sam Lowe's. Um, so he, he basically was basically going into Q1 with an arm tie behind his back, and yeah as, as Dre said, they knew exactly what they were getting themselves in for with sam Lowes, and you know if you're gonna if you're going to expect a certain <laughs> level of results from him, either give him the same bike as his teammate or basically accept that he's going to be a long way behind Elsiaspargoro um if he's going to be on much inferior equipment than him um and when you're not even going to give him a fair crack of the whip and a fair shot of getting himself a good grip position um you know, how can that be the rider's fault? How can you then basically pile pressure on your rider, then basically openly admit in public that you're talking to other riders for next year, even though Sam Lowe's has a contract for 2018 with that team, uh, which yeah. basically suggests that the team are basically prepared to rip that up and basically pay him off and get rid of him, um, is out of order. Um, you know, so it, I it, it, it's pretty clear that obviously that team is, is in a pretty factory team, but it's obviously it's a pretty factory team being run by Grissini, Um And it's already been Common knowledge from what we've heard from commentators and journalists this year that you know the, the the two sort of the two entities within that team aren't particularly working and meshing well together. a and Ancelotti, yeah. I'm talking about there. Um, it's almost as if we're getting too many cooks in that team, um, but they're not giving Sam a first shot at this, and, and you know he deserves he deserves better than Sam Lowe's. And uh, as we've spoken about before, Dre, um, we were talking about this off air. If Sam Lowe's <laughs> gets either dropped from that team mid-season
1: or is dropped at the end of this season
0: he almost becomes damaged goods there to every MotoGP team from now on
1: I called it I called it the Mika Kallio problem where Mika Kallio went up to MotoGP but he joined a really shit Pramac team you know he was outside of the top 15 in the championship in the two years he was there and no team higher than him again and he was always a good rider a rider that really paid his dues in the intermediate classes for many many years and you know, it's it's again like no one's going to hire Callio again after that one, and it, we've seen it before in Moto GP where bad teams can ruin riders' reputations, and it's unfair. It's unfair, and this will be unfair on Sam, where he's basically again been almost like he's been doomed to fail because you've given leash who again we all know is a quality rider, who is very very good at bringing bad bikes into play in in, in the course of his career. I mean, a two-time Open Class champion, after all, and. When, when you you've basically put it up for Lowe's to look really bad in, in in any measure and it like I've I think the pretty has been rather unprofessional in the way they've gone about this I mean you've you're not even halfway through the season you're not even at the summer break yet and yet you're already considering maybe talking to me bringing back Bautista or you know looking at Ian Only. As a, as, a, as a replacement. I mean, are you trying to win now, pretty? Cause you're not, you're, you're not anywhere near that right now. And yet you've got a win now sort of roster with a Spagaro and Ian Oni. And you know, well, I just, I just don't get why you invest that much in Sam Lowe's. Again, you've invested a year and a half of time, money. You've let him in through the back door. You have let him test the bike. You've, you've put him up to this, to this level where you think, okay, this is, this is the guy we think is going to be our rider of the future. And yet, a couple of bad rounds in, in on Bighton that's not as good as your, as your more experienced teammate, and you're acting like, he's shit. When I, I don't think that's entirely the case.
0: Mm, yeah, and uh, Sam Lowe's patience and his, you know, he, it finally broke on Saturday when he was interviewed about it. He finally sort of went public um, on some of the problems that he's going about. And, um, you know, this is from a, a piece by Neil Morrison, the brilliant Neil Morrison on Crash.net, um, who, who spoke to Sam, and... He was asked, Sam was asked about the track condition, and his reply was, I don't know. In the garage, it was nice. Um, He said, it was a bad day, worst day of the year for me, not from myself. I felt quite good, did a good FP4, quite a good rhythm, a 147.0 on the 12th lap of the tyre, which in the race can be not so bad, actually, Um, but it was bad. Same as Pagello, we had problems. Hereth I missed qualifying, and today, this morning, I had lots of problems in qualifying. I didn't even do a lap. I did a lap, but it was not working right. I'm frustrated, it's a tough time, tough time of the year, tough situation in the garage and some certain things going and to not uh, not even be on the track is a bit of a joke really. I don't really know the cause of the problems, they don't even know yet about the problem for today. The team's doing a good job. Aleish did a good job. A really good job today, so well done to him. His bike must be working good. I wish I could ride his bike because that's where we're at now. Um, I never say anything, but there's a time that now it's not there's a time now it's not good enough at all. I'm riding good, I'm doing a good job. I'm not crashing the bike. I'm doing solid. When we go testing I'm doing a good job. Yesterday I was one second or one point one off. That's Friday practice he's talking about. Um it's alright on an April as a rookie you're riding good. It's hard. When you're not on track, you can't improve. All I need is laps. Let me ride around. Don't even change the bike. And that was basically Sam's problem, is that the team were tinkering with his bike after free practice four, and then it wouldn't start for qualifying one. Um, Right. And he was obviously basically left on his back foot um, for qualifying two, Of qualifying one, obviously he didn't even make qualifying two Uh, in the end. He says, it's nearly unbelievable. I lay in bed at night and some of the things going on, I'm shocked and disappointed. And I'm just thinking, Fair enough. And they don't understand. My results haven't been great, but as a rookie on this bike and the package I'm on all the time, being a little bit behind, they don't quite understand, and that's very strange for me. Talking about the perception of him, of course, given how he's doing. In this panic, you need people who understand other people, and that's what I need at the minute. Other people do understand. We'll see. I'm disappointed today. Very disappointed. Um, now, Jonathan Ray spoke about it on Twitter on Saturday night saying, listening to Sam Lowe's media debrief and I can't help but feel angry about the situation he's in. Keep your head high, mate. Hashtag step-by-step. Step. That's the World Superbike Champion talking about that. Um, but Sam Lowe's also got a very high-profile supporter about a situation. And amazingly, Dre, and this kind of, again, illustrates the division
1: within that team. This is his own team, mate. Yeah. Like, again, like you'd think sometimes... Um, maybe. Uh, you'd think your teammate would be out to get you. You obviously you want to look good. I mean, that's the only real baseline you've got, and that would be, you know, trying to have your teammate in there. You know, basically going against you. But Alicia has been very candid in his support of Sam Lowes as a teammate, and you know, basically saying it's inherently unfair. And some f bombs were dropped in that in that quote as well. Like Alicia was angry at the fact that Sam Lowes had been essentially. Team. Yeah, angry his own team for essentially throwing Sam under the bus, so to speak. So, yeah, an incredible turn of events there. And I'm, I'm glad that Alicia stepped up to Sam Lowe's in that regard and defied his team to a degree because, you know, the way it is right now, I think Alicia's you know, got a very valid point. Like, again, why are you so quick to throw this man under the bus?
0: <laughs> yeah, he's one of the good guys, Alicia, isn't he? Because, uh, uh, yeah. uh, 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 because he um, kind of found this situation to his cost at Suzuka last year where the team were... You know, they practically announced Yinone, didn't they? as uh, Yannone yeah. and Rins, before they'd even given him his marching orders, if you like, and told him he was yeah. out of the team. Um, they just signed the replacement for him, and that did not go down at all well uh, with Alessio Spargaro. So, um, yeah, this situation has clearly struck a nerve with Alessio, given that he's been through this exact same situation. And you know, it's good to see him um, offering some support to his teammate, who's under fire at the moment. Um, at Aprilia, and um, yeah, we hope that he can turn that around because he's not really we, I mean, we want to see guys either succeed or fail by their own talent in MotoGP and Absolutely. it seems at the moment that Sam Lowes isn't even getting that opportunity um, one guy who's going to get an opportunity next year in Moto2 to show what he can do is Joan Mir which will come as no surprise to any of you given that he's the dominant Moto3 championship leader at the moment um, but he's found himself pretty much the best possible team, Dre for his debut Moto2 season Joan Mir in at Mark VDS
1: that's a hell of a that's a hell of a pull for Joao Meyer there. That's a very again that's that's easily the the best possible spot on um, on the Moto Two field to be in right now. I mean, Frankie Morbidelli and Alex Marquez are doing a a superb job um, right now. And yeah, I mean, it's, the the interesting quip now is going to be who does he replace in said team? Um, but yeah, like again, like I, I think Mart VDS has, has played it perfectly. They've tied down the best rider in Moto3 right now when they've brought him in.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, as you say, it, it creates a lot of knock-on effects and a lot of questions for the rest of the, the paddock, really, in all classes. Basically, what happens to Morbidelli and Marquez? Does one or both go up to to GP? And if so, do they go to the Mark VDS team? Um, we don't know what's going to happen with Tito Rabat next year. He's improved, as it happens, in the last couple of rounds, but possibly a little bit too late to save his job. Um, so at the moment it's not cut and cut and dried which it may have been a month ago which of those two moto two riders goes into the map VDS modes gp team um politically perhaps it makes more sense for marquez to get that gig um given that he's spanish and he's the brother of honda's basically favorite son at the moment mark marquez um and franco morbidelli has vr46 associations uh, which might not attract him to honda um, so yeah, that one suddenly looks a little bit more complicated and muddy than it did a month ago, um, for who gets that Mark VDS Moto GPC. And of course, if Marquez beats Morvidelli to the championship, might Morvidelli still stick around yet in Moto2, um, with that Mark VDS team? Who knows? Um, and it also, of course, as we mentioned earlier on, creates the question of who replaces John Mia at the Leopard Moto3 team. Um, Marcos Ramirez, of course, will be one of those riders perhaps linked with that seat. Um, but plenty of question marks surrounding next year's um, MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3 grids. Because that move from Joan Mir has an awkward effect in all three classes. Uh, into World Superbikes then, switching paddocks. And World Superbikes are already starting to look ahead to next year. Um, and that's not just because this year's champion already looks halfway to being decided. Um, but World Superbikes looks like they're going to try and bring in a spec ECU. For 2018, um, which, Dre, would appear to me to be the first time that Donna and, and the Superbike Commission have acknowledged publicly that they need to try and go about closing this field up.
1: Yeah, like, Donna's openly admitting, yeah, like we're getting tired of green and red at the front, basically. Yeah, I mean, uh, the first grids
0: ain't solving the problem.
1: It's, it's, it's like, really? What took you guys so long? Um, yeah, I, I, I get it, and again, we talked about this in previous weeks of the show, that, Yeah, I can see why they'd want to be. I mean, they've they've seen the success of MotoGP and what it's been like actively trying to bring the field into play. Um, Mm -hmm. But the way it is right now, I'm not sure that's going to be enough. I mean, I don't think the standardized ECU has been the difference maker in making MotoGP a more close as well. I think it's been more the case of Dawna funding the independent teams. And I'm not sure if they're willing to go that far again here in order to try and um, do that in, in World world because so I'm not sure if the standard ECU's going to do that because again, like it's it's. I think it's going to be a matter of curbing Ducati and Kawasaki's resources. I think that's going to be the have to be the way to um, bring the lesser teams into play. Maybe that as a budget cap, or maybe removing testing. Uh, so might be a better solution of trying to you know bring other teams into play. Um, but I'm not entirely sure a standard ECU is going to be the way to do it but i will also say i'm glad that Dorna is actively open out there saying yeah listen this is getting a bit out of hand now basically yeah,
0: <laughs> it's it's, tra- it's actually it's now actively trying to go about balancing the field technically uh, rather than through some artificial grid panel so grid reversal um, which hasn't really worked this year let's face it um and as you say a spec ecu is is all well and good but the factory teams of which there are kawasaki and Ducati, who are full factory teams, we explained this before, how a number of the teams who run factory bikes are actually independent teams running factory bikes. Um, Kawasaki and Ducati will still have more manpower, greater greater manpower, more numbers in their garages, who will be able to make that spec ECU work. Um, more electronics engineers and, and such like. And that's what we saw in MotoGP. Even when we brought the spec ECU in, Movistar Yamaha still have a lot more electronics engineers than Monster Yamaha Tech 3 do. And as a result, are going to figure it out quicker. Um, yeah. So, so that that it may be a step in the right direction, but there's still more work <laughs> to be done in World Superbikes. Um, let's look ahead to this weekend then, and uh, the British Superbike Championship makes its welcome return after a month off. They are back in action at Knockhill in Scotland. But one rider yeah, yeah, yeah. we will not be seeing is Davide Giuliano. And as we found out uh, today on the day of recording, Drake, we won't be seeing Davide Giuliano in Tyco BMW colours again at all.
1: No, Um, which is sad in a sense because I thought that was one of the real big name draws to bring into the series. Like, I'm excited
0: about this. Yeah,
1: I got Davide in there, and I was like, okay, that's a nice hire—a guy that you know, been you know, race-winning level, you know, quality rider in worlds. You know, great rider, given you know, Chaz Davis and the rest good runs for their money on occasion. And yeah, I thought that was a nice name to have for the series. A guy that had done it on the world stage and got into BSB, and it's just. It's just not worked out for Davide, really. I mean, again, like a a fringe point scorer and then got hurt at that really nasty crash of Brands Hatch. I mean, it's a part of Brands Hatch which which really isn't protected all that well. um, Outside, just past turn two, past Panic Hill Bend, and it's a very, very um, thin part of the track there. If you you take a hit there, you're going to get hurt, basically. And he's not really recovered since. I mean, the, the, the reasons that Davide said is that, you know, oh, it's probably best for my, my rehabilitation if I leave the team now. and it, That just doesn't make any sense to me because why would not being part of a team make your rehabilitation go faster? I don't get it no. um, when that's concerned. But uh, I think there's something more that's going on there internally. Um, I think maybe Tycho's thinking, you know, Christian didn't having a really good time of it so far this season. Maybe let's get a second guy in there, see if we can maybe scrape a second man into the showdown if, if, the, if his form's well enough. I think... They've cut ties with Davide early so they can bring another rider in to basically use as a blocker maybe for Christian Eden's season so far. Maybe something like that, but it's a very puzzling one. But uh, I wish Davide the best. It's a shame this one didn't work out because I was really looking forward to seeing him in this series.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. I was hoping that he would um, he would make that work. And given that we never quite saw the best of him in World Superbikes, so obviously he never won a race there, um, we were hoping that he'd really sort of light up the British Superbike Championship. But it looks as if the World Superbike panic is where he wants to go next. Um, when he's fully fit again, and we wish him all the very best. Um, yep. With that, I have to say, um, given that it's been so long, it's been a month since we last saw British Superbike action. I had to remind myself how the championship sits um, by, uh, by looking at the British Superbike app. Leon Haslam leads it at the moment with uh, 111 points, three ahead of his teammate, Luke Mossy. Um, Leon Haslam, of course, has been on a world Superbike podium since we've last seen him on a British Superbike grid. Um, Christian is in third on 86, 19 ahead of Brooks, Josh Brooks on uh, 867 for Anvil Hire Yamaha. Then comes Glenn Irwin and Jason R. Halloran. Um, So um, the route back into the Showdown 6 continues for Shaky Byrne. Former winner at Knock Hill on that Ducati. That Ducati seems to go well around Knock Hill. So um, this looks like the weekend that we see Shaky Byrne finally climb back in to that top six, Dre. Probably. Um, But it's going to not be cut and dry for him, though, is it? I mean, Kawasaki have certainly had the edge on Ducati so far this year. Um, and it has to be said, the sixth place man the in the championship, Jason O'Halloran, was quickest at the Snetterton test last week. So it's
1: not of yeah. dried for Shaky to climb back up there. No, it's not. And Honda's—they're looks, looks like getting better by the round right now. Honda seem to be getting more and more comfortable with that new Fireblade. So as, like, we're seeing, like, we're already seeing dynamic changes in the field as time goes on. Here, it's looking um, like Honda's starting to find themselves a little bit, and that's not ruled out, Gintoli. Totally. Coming back on the Suzuki as well, there's going to be guys in and around that showdown. Look at Josh Brooks as well, another guy that's on his day and really get in there and mix it up with the podium and the best of them. So, Shaky's not going to have it all his own way. There's going to be a good half dozen dudes in there that are around that showdown sort of level where if they have the right weekend, we'll make Shaky's job that much harder. Mm, always unpredictable around Knockhill. Hill. It's, it's one of those mm. great British venues where it's not really quite like any other circuit in the world, Knockhill.
0: Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out this weekend. Um, they, of course, race twice on Sunday. Well, Superbikes race once on Sunday, once on Saturday. They're back in action this weekend with the Riviera de Rimini round, um, which is nothing if not a mouthful. Um, but uh, they, they're they back in action this weekend. And this is, although it's a Italian round, Ray, it's not really Ducati's kind of circuit, this one, is it, Mizano? Um, even on his worst days, Jonathan Ray tends to go well at Mizano. Um, which kind of without ready to
1: ready to write off this weekend already kind of gives us an idea how this one might play out Um, Kawasaki wins lol um, basically um, yeah the way it is right now I mean it's it's a Jonathan Ray round it really is Um, Ducati don't tend to go all that well here it's been a Kawasaki track as far as long as I can remember um, and yeah like there's nothing really out there to suggest anything different really this time round. I mean If anything, the the tracks where Kawasaki's been strong, Jonathan Ray's pretty much doubled down on it so far this season. So, yeah, the way it's going right now, I wouldn't expect anything else than a Jonathan Ray double, unfortunately. Sorry for those guys that are wanting a bit more excitement out of me, but uh, I don't see any other way right now, unfortunately. So we'll have to wait and see how it goes, but um, I'm thinking green on this one. Lots and lots of
0: yeah, I have to say, I'm just looking back on past results to, to see, because they, they won both races last season, um, did Kawasaki, um, although it was one apiece. Um, Sykes won race one last year, Mizano, and then Ray won race two um, at the Mizano World Circuit Marcus Riccioli, after Sykes had taken pole position. Stop me if you've heard that one before. Um, but, uh, but back in 2015, I'm pretty sure Kawasaki won both of those as well. Um, just looking back on the results from that year before, since Jonathan Ray joined the team, I don't think they've ever been beaten um, at Misano. Let's have a look. 2015, Mizano. Um, yeah, Sykes race one, Ray race two. So so they've pretty much, oh. split, they pretty much split the victories between them at Kawasaki in the last two years um, at Misano. So yeah. Doesn't really, I feel like we took much hope for Ducati to um, stop that rot this weekend. It's a bit of a shame though, isn't it, Dre? As much as, you know, the championship kind of closed a bit after Donington with Ray's um, unfortunate demise in race one. Sanks gained 25 points on him in that race. Um, but we can't really build any kind of momentum for any kind of championship fight here because we're now going to that horrible stage of the calendar where World Superbikes practically races once a month.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like it's it's that it's it just feels sluggish at this point. Like like Waltz just seems to chug along now until the end of the season with like distant gaps, and we uh, still got a summer break to go. And I just don't get why they can't just race at more locations and spread the calendar out a little bit, let's like bring it in a little bit, make it a bit more dense, um, as opposed to getting all these like one month, like one like one weekend a month sort of weekends now from here on in. It's just not. It doesn't feel particularly nice, and as you say, like Tom Sykes has taken twenty-five points at a Jonathan Race Championship advantage, and and yet yeah, it just doesn't feel like there's a real championship fight on right now. That's a shame.
0: Yeah, it's, it should be one of those where right, Sykes is gained twenty points, twenty-five points. Right, let's let's right, let's bring on the next round. Is the championship on again? No, right, we'll just have to wait another three weeks, and then we'll and then we'll find out. Um, it, it's one of those because the first race at Mizano on Saturday um, or just about an hour ago as we release this. So you'll you'll probably see race one by the time this goes out. Um, Will of March, the halfway stage of this season. Um, 13 rounds, 26 races. Um, This is the 13th race of the season um, at Mizano race one. Um, Yet we're only in mid-June and we're at the halfway point of the season so um, that kind of tells you a lot in that how spaced out the rest of the calendar is um, Laguna Seca which is the next round after this well, always a favorite with every Superbike fan um, isn't up for another three weeks after this then it's another six weeks to look at the, the uh, German round at the Lausitz ring uh, then we have to wait another month for the Portuguese round of port and Mau. Um And then we then go back into two weeks between rounds for Magni-Court, Jerez and Qatar to close out the season. So it's a bit disjointed now at this stage of the season, unfortunately. Um, one other line to bring you on this World Superbike round... Um, and that's, unfortunately, Honda. They will still be running one bike for this round at Mizano. Of course, uh, Nicky Hayden, who lost his life um, in a training accident in the Rimini area of Italy uh, as well, where the Mizano circuit is based um, a few weeks ago. Um, mm. They still haven't replaced him yet, and um, we don't quite know it yet whether he will be replaced at all this season. Um, of course, I remember from Moto 2 last year when Luis Salom lost his life, the team didn't replace him at all for the rest of the year um in moto two uh, but don't quite know yet whether honda are going to do that as well i know there is a rule that if a rider is injured you've got to replace him within two rounds of course if a rider loses his life altogether i think that rule pretty much goes out the window understandably um yeah. so it will be interesting to see what honda do because of course the next round is nikki hayden's home round at laguna seca so oh boy. don't know about you jay i'd hate to be the guy that has to step up and ride that second honda there um, if um, not be me, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that for all the tea in China. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much longer Stefan Bradl is the sole Honda rider uh, at that team. It will be another tough weekend for the Red Bull Honda team uh, of course, interesting weekend in all three classes, or all four classes, because of course, 1,000 are in action too. Super Sport 300, this might be another of those circuits that perhaps showcases the Super Sport 300 a little better than Aragon did earlier in the year. Um, but to finish off, though, Dre, we'll talk about the Super Sport class, because of course, that continues this weekend. And uh, Lucas Mahias, who leads this championship, he continues to uh, try and um, fight off the uh, the big wave that continues to chase him. He's trying to swim against the tide, the tide being Kiantuf Woglu. Um, can Mahias finally, finally snap this run of second as or will Safoglu continue to kind of make a
1: mockery of the field? Um, uh, um, like, like, Super Supersport is kind of in a no-win situation here now, it's like, okay, the, you have Keelan curb-stomped the field despite missing two rounds and kind of making a mockery of the most loaded Supersport class the sport has seen for many years or does Mahayas limp his way to victory but kind of feels hollow given that he's won it as a direct result of Keenan missing the first two rounds and then being taken out in the third it's it's it's, a, it's again it's it's a no win situation for Worlds right now and it, it, I feel bad I feel bad for him really because like my can't really win here. Um, it's either a hollow championship victory or he misses out and looks silly because Keenan didn't score a point through three rounds. Um, it's, it's not pretty, but um, yeah, like I think to be on the safe side Mahias needs at least one more win, like a, a, a race where he can just hold the Safoglu charge because as it stands again, if, if Keenan runs the table, then he wins the championship on countback, on, And that would be awful for Mahias to, to lose it that way. But um, the way it's going right now, Mahias needs a W somewhere.
0: Mm, yeah, if there's one kind of comfort for Lucas Mahias, is that he did win uh, at Mizana last year in the Superstock 1000 class. So he has uh, a winning record around that place. Um, so perhaps he can continue that this weekend. Uh, last year, that was the, the famous race where the two race leaders, Michael Ruben minaldi and Rafa De Rosa, who of course uh, De Rosa is now in, Mo- in World Superbikes with the title BMW team, were fighting for the lead on the last lap and took each other out on the final lap, um, yeah. allowing Mahias to take the win. Um, so mm-hmm. Mahias does have some uh, positive memories to draw upon uh, at Mizano this weekend, but as Dre mentioned, he needs to beat Sofoglu sooner or later. Whatever does happen at Misano and indeed at Knock Hill in Scotland, we will review it all. Next week, here on episode 18 of Bike Live on Motorsport 101. Before then, though, uh, episode 91 of Motorsport 101, as Dre looks to regain control uh, of his podcast. And um, it's going to be a lemon heavy edition this week, Dre. Yeah,
1: the the, the preview to the lemon 24 hours will be next week. That'll be great. And we're probably going to be answering a lot of your mailbag questions as well. So looking forward to seeing how that plays out. Um, so yeah, looking forward to that. Multiple one one episode ninety one and we're getting into the birth years now. It's kind of annoying now. Like we're in, <laughs> we're, in we're in that millennial zone as we as we run up to episode number one hundred. But uh yeah, your great big Lamon twenty-four hour preview, um as well as talking about most likely Kamuri Kobayashi's scintillating three minute fourteen, fastest ever <laughs> lap of Lamon, um since they put the chicanes in anyway, in brackets. But um yeah, stunning stuff. That... Your big Le Mans bon 2017 preview coming up next week on Motorsport 101.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll look back on on that race, which, as you say, by the time we record this, the race will probably be starting around now. Um, so uh so given that you've got 24 hours to uh to fill um yeah might as well listen to this for two of them um so uh so enjoy the lamont 24 hours it's probably that one race of the year that all motorsport fans even fence sitters will always make an effort to watch so um uh, yes. yeah we'll uh, we'll look back on that next week episode 91 of Motorsport 11 and episode 18 of bike live to come towards the end of next week when we'll review the Superbike Weekend at Misano and Knock Hill. Until then, from myself, through was bit Andre House, and Andre Harrison. It's thank you to all of you for listening, and we will see you again next week. Bye for now.